There is no truth. And so we all have to get much, much better at constantly testing and busting and breaking down those narratives and then thinking functionally about those narratives. Radio Mano Papachango. Hey Chris, my name is Matt. I'm uh, currently standing at the edge of uh, my wife's family's rice fields in Preving, Cambodia, about two hours southeast of uh, the capital Phnom Penh. Um, really enjoy your podcast, listen to every episode. Um, just became a father for the first time two weeks ago. I'm 43 years old, never plan on having kids, but uh, never plan on moving to Cambodia and getting married either, so. Life kicks you in the ball sometimes, I guess, doesn't it? Anyway, uh, hope everyone's happy and enjoying their podcast and doing well. Uh, thanks for all you do, Chris. Bye. Hey, Chris, another tangentially speaking listeners. Um, Stanley, I'm from Fort Worth, Texas. Just got off a long day fixing fire alarm systems, dealing with a lightning strike, taking down a whole building. Been listening to the podcast with Aaron Ralston. Just wanted to say thank you and keep doing what you're doing. Greetings, Chris. My name is Shauna. I'm a public health warrior here in our nation's capital. I've been meaning to record one of these for a while now to assure you that there are lots of smart, fantastic women who are listening to your podcast. As a 40-something-year-old woman practicing ethical non-monogamy, I am very grateful that you're having such a positive and profound effect on multiple generations of men and women, but especially men. Good role models and truth tellers are important, and we certainly need your quiet, thoughtful voice in this noisy, noisy world. So stay the course, and I will too. Thanks. What's up, beautiful people? Welcome to another edition of Tangentially Speaking. My name is Chris. I'm your host. I'm sitting in a parking lot in Whistler, B.C., outside the Starbucks, where I am going to go pirate their Wi-Fi to upload this episode as soon as I'm done talking to you right now. I'm sitting in the van between two giant garbage trucks. I'm not sure I'm legally parked. I don't really know. There's so many signs designating different places for different types of vehicles. These Canadians, they're very specific with their parking rules. <clears throat> anyway, um, having a great time in Canada. We've been doing these get-togethers uh, along the road. We did one in uh, Vancouver two nights ago. Fantastic. Probably 50 people showed up. Uh, worked out really well. I was a little worried that the place we chose in Kitsilano was going to be too crowded and yeah, whatever. I had all sorts of, you know, last minute, um, anxiety about it, but it turned out great. We got a bunch of tables in the corner, booths and tables. And as our group kept growing magically, tables kept opening up nearby, maybe because we were loud and obnoxious. I, I don't know. Maybe we were driving people away, but it was kind of a colonial, uh, feeling. 
as we expanded into empty space. Um, but it was great. We had a really good time, met some fantastic people. Um, everybody I met was fantastic. There was one situation where I thought, wow, finally a tangentially speaking fan who is not super cool. Um, because at one point in the evening, one of the wait- waitresses came over and said, Hey, do you know this guy? Uh, I forget his name. Um, Forrest, maybe it was. <clears throat> and, uh, I said, well, I don't know. I, I seem to remember someone named that, but I don't know who it is. Well, he left without paying. <clears throat> I said, oh, fuck. That's, that sucks. So I said, well, you know, whatever. I'll cover, I'll cover it. Don't worry about it. I guess I'm responsible for this guy in some way. And, um, then, 20 minutes later, she came back and I was feeling bad. Like, wow, what a, what a lame move, you know, to run away without paying. And you're here with this group and all that. Anyway, 20 minutes later, she came back. She said, Hey, that guy Forrest, he called, he forgot to pay. He wired money to the restaurant. He's super cool. Like, you know, really nice guy. So even that situation turned out to be fantastic. So I still have yet to meet a tangentially speaking listener who is not a really nice, interesting, unusual person. I know there's a inherent contradiction in what I just said, that there's a consistency in the unusuality of you people, but there is. Sorry for the coughing. I've got like... um, getting over a cold. I was up on um, Cortez Island a few days ago with uh, visiting Andy Weil. Didn't record a podcast with him. Was only there for a couple of nights and uh, we were just sort of hanging out. And then Paul Stamets showed up uh, the morning I was leaving and uh, hung out with him and talked about doing a podcast, but he was also super busy. So we're going to do it another time. Um, I'd like to get Paul and Andy on together because they've known each other for 40 years and have lots of great stories and people they've met and things they've done over the years. Um, I'd also love to get the two of them on Rogan's show. So, Joe, if you're listening, uh, Andy Weil, Paul Stamets, double episode uh, would be really fantastic, I think. Uh, what else can I tell you? We did a get-together in Whistler last night. <clears throat> I had no idea there were people in Whistler who listened to this little thing I put out. But uh, there are about a dozen people showed up, and it was uh, Saturday night, and most of the people... Uh, work in the service industry here. There are a lot of um, Australians and um, uh, obviously Canadians, people from all over the world who come here in Whistler to work in the restaurants and um, you know bars and and uh, take care of the rich people who come for their summer uh, vacation and all that. Um, yeah, it's amazing how many Australians there are in Canada. Like most of the national parks I've stopped in so far seem to be staffed by Australians, young Australians who come up here, um, to check out Canada and I guess see a part of the world very different from where they come from. So that's cool. Um, I've been having a great time. It's fantastic from Whistler. As soon as I upload this podcast, I'm going to the grocery store, going to load up on food, and then we're headed up to, um, I don't know, Pemberton, I think, and 
um, uh, on our way to Jasper, but we'll be taking our time. So we'll be in the mountains, just uh, camping out and chilling for a while. And then uh, we don't really have anything scheduled till we get to Banff. Um, that's on the 25th when uh, I've been invited to do some kind of senderismo thing where you're clipped into cables and walking over thousand foot sheer cliff drop offs and <clears throat> one of those things that feels really dangerous but actually isn't hopefully uh, I try to uh, Try to minimize risk while increasing thrill. That's the secret. That's my formula for success. So having a great time. Um, I want to definitely give a shout out to BMC for the, the mountain bikes. These electric assist mountain bikes that they hooked us up with are so fucking fun. I can't begin to tell you how much fun this is. Uh, in fact, I was riding, uh, this morning along a river, um, where we camped out last night and the trails up here are just fantastic, of course. And, you know, it occurred to me that my favorite terrain is slightly uphill because with the electric assist going uphill, going downhill, it doesn't matter. The difference is that you have more control going uphill. So it's actually for someone like me, a novice rider going downhill is more dangerous. If you know, like stopping, you skid, you might lose control going uphill. You stop, you stop. It's easy. Right. And the because of the electric assist motors you uh, going uphill is almost as easy as going downhill it's essentially like flat you just you know there are three different settings for the assist so how much power you want it to give you and then of course you have all the gears and the suspension and everything of a normal mountain bike so they're fantastic these are really good um specialized hooked me up with one uh, a few years ago i've been riding that and uh, that's also a fantastic that's the turbo levo and uh, but these bmc bikes are next level they're just fantastic pricey i couldn't afford to buy one if if i had to go out and get one but if you've got some cash and you're at the stage of life where you want to be out riding a lot having a good time but realistically you're not going to take the normal mountain bike out very often just because, you know, you're not in as good a shape as you used to be or, uh, you know, maybe you've got issues in your knees or whatever and you're back. You want to, like, uh, take it easy a little bit. Uh, if you can afford one of these, holy shit, if you can afford two of them, even better so your friend can go with you. Um, but they're really game changers. They, cause you do have to, you're pedaling, you're working, you break a sweat, you get as much of a workout as you want. You can turn off the motor, um, as I often do going downhill, just turn it off and you're just riding a regular bike or flat, you know. Um, they're not that heavy. They're about 45 pounds, I think. Um, these are the big knobby tired ones. So anyway, BMC, thank you. Beautiful, beautiful gift. And I'm very grateful for that. Uh, I've got other stuff I'm supposed to mention, but I'm sitting in the van. I don't have my computer. I'm, I'm just going to wing this one. And, uh, 
it's really cool actually. I look around this parking lot and there are a bunch of sprinter vans and transits and you can see uh, a lot of people are doing what I'm doing uh, up here in Whistler. Pretty cool. It's like a little community. I feel like going around and knocking on doors and asking people for tours, you know, because this is where you really learn the tricks, what other people have developed in their little van lives. Uh, all right. I'm going to say goodbye. Uh, I, there's lots of stuff I should be talking about. I'll probably record a Toma from a campsite somewhere. And, uh, I've, you know, been thinking about things I want to share with you, stuff I want to talk about, um, some emails that I've received that I wanted to share. You know, it's a strange, like, I don't want to invade anyone's privacy by talking too much about, uh, personal things that come up, but it's just so amazing. The, the things that people share, um, in these get togethers and, and also in emails that you send me. And I don't really know how to respond. I don't even know how to, to think about the things that you say to me. Um, what I'm talking about, you know, people say things like, okay, um, uh, uh, there was a guy at the get together the other day and he, had sent me um, a message before, and then we talked a little bit uh, personally at the get-together. And um, his wife had died not too long ago, and he went into, you know, obviously he went into despair. He, he went into a very bad, difficult time in his life. And for some reason, he said this podcast helped him through that. Now, I don't, obviously, I'm not recording this thinking that someone out there has just lost their wife or their child or their father. And, and you know, I'm not shaping any of these conversations or any of my intros to any particular kind of pain that someone might be going through. I don't know. In other words, what I'm saying is I don't know why this podcast helped him. I'm just so fucking grateful that it did. And somehow in a way that I'm not even aware of. And so I'm certainly not, um, I'm not responsible. I'm, I'm not, um, what can I say? Like I, I don't deserve thanks, I guess is what I'm saying. People thank me, but I don't deserve thanks because I'm not doing this with the intention of providing that kind of service. And yet people find that value somehow. So it's this very strange situation where people are telling me these incredibly moving stories about the value that they find in these conversations. And I'm so grateful that that happens. And yet, to be honest, I need to acknowledge that I'm not aware of that at all until you tell me that. And even then, it's like you're finding value that I didn't put there. So when someone says thank you, I'm like, geez, like, 
yeah, I want to be polite and say you're welcome, but on the other hand, you're thanking me for something I never did. So I don't, I, I don't know. It's all just very confusing, you know. And then like we do these get-togethers, and people are like, "Oh my God, that that's really you and your voice and the face." Like, yeah, it's so weird to see people reacting to me as if I'm anything other than some douchebag in a van. It's so weird because that's all I am, right? I mean, let's face it. And so it's just, I don't know. I don't know. And here I am like, you know, yammering about being semi-famous or something, which is obnoxious and ridiculous. But you see my, I don't know if you can see my point. It's so, I'm so fucking grateful is what I'm saying that somehow this thing that I'm doing that I really enjoy doing that I would do for myself, that I would do for free, that I would do just because it's fun to have conversations with people and have a, an excuse to get them to sit down for a couple hours and tell me their story. I fucking love doing this and I'm so happy that for at least some people out there in the world there's value even beyond the value that i get out of it so i don't know that was a really long-winded ridiculous statement but um and if i were a pro i would delete it and write something tighter and think it through and record it again but i'm not a pro i'm just a douchebag in a van hunter motts is the guest He's a good friend. He's super smart. Um, we talk about thinking. He's a very metacognitive guy, so he likes to think about thinking, and he does it very well. Uh, I recorded this in L.A. before leaving, and so I'm trying to get these up and out, even though it's it's hard because you know there's no Wi-Fi most of the places I am, and um, but I've been recording great ones on the road, and I'm eager to start getting those out to you as well. So I've probably recorded half a dozen episodes uh, since I've been on the road. I hope your life is going well, and if it isn't, hold on. Get through the white water. There's some beautiful stretches just ahead. And, uh, yeah, whether things are are smooth or rough or whatever's happening in your life, I'm grateful to be here with you in your ear it's a very privileged place to be i want you to know i don't take it for granted all right thank you catch you next time ladies and gentlemen i have hunter Motts on my sofa (laughs) i got i gotta get it clean i got hunter Motts all over the sofa This is the beginning of Chris's confession for the second time that he's going to go to jail, maybe for a little bit longer. Who got the Mots on my sofa? <laughs> so Mots is Dutch, right? Yes. Yeah. And what, does it mean something? Uh, there's the, uh, yeah, it means measure. Um, a mot is a measure in Dutch. Like matrix? Like matrix, yeah. Wow. Okay. And then the apocryphal story that we have is is that it comes from the goddess Ma'at uh, because she would weigh the feather of truth, justice, and universal order against the heart of the deceased to see whether they were worthy the to fuck? pass into the afterlife. <laughs>
And that's your like grandmother or something? Yeah, that's the idea. It's a, it's a, that's the, the, you know, like if you're, but how you connect Dutch to Egyptian is right, <laughs> like some national treasure right. level of causality. Yeah, yeah. I was just in Bali recently. Yeah. Uh, a lot of Dutch stuff going on down there. Not much Egyptian connection for you. No. But, you know. No, but there, you know, uh, that is the, that was the great sort of colonial legacy of the Dutch was yeah. Indonesia. Yeah. It's pretty much all you guys had. I mean, yeah. what was it? You traded Manhattan for an island in Indonesia, actually. Yeah. For the Spice Islands. So yeah. there was, uh, there was, all, there's all the Indonesian archipelago, uh, the Jakarta at the time was known as Batavia. Oh, um, wow. because the so in the in the sort of romantic period where everybody's trying to find some sort of nationalist like Ur tribe, the Dutch dug through the various Latin sources, and the closest they could find was the Batavians, who were some group of Celts, Germanic people, whatever they were, uh, who were puttering around in the Low Countries, and so they were like, "Oh, we were the Batavians." So oh. periodically, with the Dutch, you'll see like there's a brand of bicycles called Batavas. Uh, Batavia was the name of Jakarta. Um, hmm. And that's that's sort of the origin story that the Dutch go for. Right, right. Um, but there are other places as well, like uh, Curaçao, some places in the Caribbean, right. Aruba. And there's a place in the north coast of South America oh, that was a Dutch colony. Suriname. Is that Suriname? Yeah, I think yeah, so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah interesting the way the colonial period like still reflects back and so strange. Well, know. and also what the priorities of the different colonial powers were. The Dutch were mostly interested in, like, I think the Dutch understood as merchants that actually controlling land is a pain in the ass. Mm. And that if you have good trade access, that it doesn't really matter who yeah. controls that particular chunk of land. Right. Um, I was... I think it might have been his film series. It's a um, documentary that I watched when I was in Indonesia called Ring of Fire. Mm -hmm. Do you know this? It was filmed in the 70s by these two British brothers. It's amazing. Really yeah. interesting. Um, maybe that's where I, I heard this. But anyway, recently uh, what I heard was that the Dutch were the shipbuilders mm -hmm. for the Spanish. Yep. And then I, I guess Spain occupied Holland, right, for some period. And then when that ended, the, they kicked the Spanish out or whatever happened. The Dutch were like, well, we know how to build the ships. And the navigators were mostly Dutch. Yeah. So we know where we're going. We know how to build the ships. So if we could just raise some capital, we could get in in this game ourselves. And then, like, weren't some of the earliest corporations... Were Dutch. Were Dutch, right. So the Habsburg... To raise money, right? Yeah, so the, the Habsburg ships. Empire was all of Spain, and then uh, the Holy Roman Empire was also part of the Habsburg Empire, mm. and then the Low Countries were also part of the Habsburg Empire. So they had this huge empire, and part of the problem was is that it was in two separate territorial chunks right, right. that were disconnected, and so they the Habsburgs actually deliberately split up the empire because it was ungovernable, especially uh, once Spain got all the New World colonies. Uh, now you have this right. truly ungovernable mass. Right. And then once they'd split it up, the Dutch basically saw the opportunity for independence. 
Um, and then, you know, you have the 80 Years War, which is the war for Dutch independence. But then there's a split in the Low Countries between who wants independence and who doesn't, which falls along religious lines. Um, so basically, the Catholic parts of the Low Countries remain loyal and are Belgium. Oh, and then right. the Protestant parts become Holland. Really? Uh, which is actually, Holland is two provinces. There's North and South Holland. And then the Netherlands is the actual sort of all the United Provinces of Holland. Both of them. It's both of them plus other different places as well, other different provinces. So there's, I think, 11 different provinces that make up the Netherlands. Um, oh, so wait, the Netherlands and Holland isn't the same thing? No. So it's when people in English say Holland, they're referring to the country that is the Netherlands, right? right? But actually, the Netherlands is 11 different provinces, and then there two of the provinces are North and South Holland. So oh. it would be like if we referred to the whole of the United States as the Carolinas, right? Mm. So it's, yeah. You know, Europeans need to work this shit out. I mean, how many names do you need for your fucking country? You know, like, oh, is it the UK or is it England or is it Britain or is it Great Britain? Just pick one. Is it America? Is it the United States of America? Is it the States? Pick one, guys. That's true. Yeah. And even America pisses off. I, I used to oh. live with a Colombian dude, and when I said I was American, he was like, no! We're no, all Americans. Somos Americanos. Tú eres yeah. un estadounidense. Yeah. And I was like, dude, I That's can't all- pronounce that. I'm just learning Spanish. I can't pronounce estadounidense. Gringo is much easier. Yeah, gringo. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, now, this, this Dutch history that we're talking about, does this explain why Santa Claus comes from Madrid? Uh, the Dutch? Well, so yeah, that is part of that is probably part of the connection. Sinterklaas, right? Um, Sinterklaas and Black Pete. Yeah, Zwarte Piet. Zwarte Piet. Which is, 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 <laughs> is a little bit it's a touchy. Little, I was just talking about this yeah. with Wim Hof and his his oh, really? uh, kids last night. Yeah, we were uh, talking about the sort of friendly racism of Dutch Christmas. What I what I love is is that like the so the whole time that you know because I moved to the United States only in ninety nine two thousand and you know the whole time I've been watching all of the sort of the pushback about racism and social justice warriors and I was like, man, if you guys only knew about Dutch Christmas, <laughs> like then you would actually have something yeah. to be really You're mad really about. Really riled up about um, Black Pete. Yeah, Black Pete is is really not appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I don't, these things are so complicated, though. I mean, because like I have a good friend who's Dutch, and he's like, yeah, but everyone loves Black Pete. Like nobody's nobody's pissing on him. He's like, they love him. He's one of our favorite Christmas characters. You know, it's like saying, you know, the the elves are inappropriate because they're short people. And, you know, like, well, well, you know, and it's also the the context in which black Pete was come up with, you come up with, you know, I mean, it's like, you need something that is different and sort of magical, right? Right. And they came up with a magical Negro, right? right? Which in the 1600s, that was their frame of reference and that was what they were exposed to. You know, you could have also come up with a unicorn or an elf or any of these sorts of things. So it's not that they were per se, you know, referring to black people. Um, They just, again, like it's the 1600s. What was their frame of reference? What did they understand? Um, But also the idea that Santa Claus takes a ship from Madrid 
which doesn't even have a port. I mean, no. it's an inland city. But anyway, I guess Santa Claus lives in Madrid, eats a lot of ham and manchego and drinks red wine. And then, which already is a much more relatable Santa than a guy who has magical powers and chooses to domicile at the North Pole. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I definitely enjoy that kind of Santa Claus, the Spanish Santa Claus. He's like bullfighting. And, uh, it's like when Santa Claus is off duty in yeah, Spain, exactly. he's like, wow, what a cool life. And then, so I guess he goes up to the Basque country or something, you know, Bilbao or somewhere and gets on a ship, mm-hmm. comes up to Holland with his docks at Rotterdam with all of his black followers, with his black Pete and, and the others yeah. and the reindeer. And then from there, from there are no reindeer, there are oh, no reindeer, there are no reindeer. Well, no how reindeer. does he distribute gifts in Holland? Uh, well, so he also has the ability to like do the chimney thing, go through keyholes. But how does he get on the roof? Uh, well, so I don't think he necessarily, that's not, I don't know that that's clarified in the, what? In the mythos. Come the on other, now. the other thing is, is that apparently Dutch kids. also, I mean, that apparently like my dad has talked to me about this before as a child, the myth was that he could also get through radiators because a lot of people <laughs> didn't have fireplaces. <laughs> so he's pretty shifty. <laughs> comes in through the, through the radiator. Cause if like you don't have a fireplace. noise that it makes. Yeah, exactly. That that's thing. sick. Of trying to get through there, <laughs> he comes through the like the pressure the, release yeah, valve totally. or something. Doesn't that make sense to you, Chris? Not at all. I want to know how the fuck's he get on the rooftop if he doesn't have reindeer. I thought he took reindeer well, also how on does, the ship, and then yeah. from Rotterdam he flew around with the reindeer. No. No. no, he comes on the ship and then there's a big thing. Part of the part of the sort of the, you know, the TV spectacle, the lead up, right, is, is that the ship arrives. Sinterklaas is there. He's got Svartopit and all of his other black friends. And then he gets off the ship and everybody's excited to see him there. And then also we all put out our clogs and then there will be presents in the in the morning and how that happens in your clogs in your clogs like that's that's the thing is you don't put out a stocking you put out clogs and then he fills your clogs with presents wow and then there are very specific things that he tends to give so obviously there's like different types of candy the big thing is for 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 me as a kid was always the chocolate letter which is chocolate letter so you know you would get a big c and like what your what your first the first initial of your name is becomes super important at christmas time because if you're ian you're getting fucked every christmas because right? i has less chocolate Cho- less chocolate but if you're hunter like h oh, is a good letter right r is a great letter like m and w. w are amazing yeah. letters <laughs> like you know so you uh, know there it's it's there's all sorts of politics around that wow Wow. All right. And are there trees? There's no Christmas tree. No, there's not a, not a big... People do do Christmas trees. And then even then... So when my dad was a kid, it was always about... They would do uh, silver tinsel on the trees. And then they would do candles. Actual fucking candles lit that you lit. candles which on is, flammable trees. <laughs> it's a fucking terrible in idea. wood houses. Yeah. 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 Great. <laughs> All right. So anyway, Hunter Mots, we didn't know we'd be talking about that for the no. first 11 minutes, minutes. of this yeah. podcast. 
It's but been a while. It has been a while. Like you, I mean, I don't know how long it's been, but a lot of shit's gone down. You, yeah. You got married. Yeah, I did get married. You went off to South Africa and yeah. got yourself pregnant. And I, came- I, I did get myself pregnant, which is what this podcast <laughs> is really about. <laughs> what pregnancy is like for a man and what I can yeah. report as yeah. a pregnant man. Yeah. How's it feel? Um, it's, uh, it's good to stop so menstruating. It right? is. That was really nice. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just a miracle. And, you know, I mean, people talk a lot about penis envy, but, you know, the envy that men feel around being able to give birth. Do you think that's a thing? What? Is that a thing? Penis envy or woman? No, envy? no the, the whole like, um, you know, I've read these historical theories that like Western civilization is born from men's rage at not being able to control the birth, you know, and I I've really like I've never envied women the. Uh, their opportunity to scream in pain while a living creature crawls out of an <laughs> orifice. <laughs> to be a that's chrysalis? Never, no. That's never been something that I've envied. No. I mean, I admire it, that they yeah. survive it somehow, and that they're willing to do it for the most part, but... It's never been something I've been like, oh, how come I don't get to do that? Yeah. I bleed all the time. Well, especially, you know, because I think part of the Western experience is you're so isolated from childbirth. Like I, you know, hadn't held a baby for most of my life, hadn't really Mm. spent any time. And then, you know, suddenly some of my friends are starting to give birth. And then I started to find out about things like torn perineums. Right. And once I found out about the torn perineum, any any womb envy I might have felt yeah. was fucking gone. It's funny. I just, last night we were talking about torn perineums um, because I was explaining to my Dutch friend and him, mm-hmm. who is Wim's son, mm-hmm. uh, what a taint is. Mm-hmm. Because he said something about his scrotum. I was like... And I and I, I forget the context of the sentence, but I realized that he he was mistaking scrotum for taint. Ah. I was like, no, no, got to set you straight here. Now the scrotum yeah. is the ball sack. Right. What you're talking about is the taint. And he's right. like, taint? What is the taint? <laughs> I say, well, it taints your ball sack and it taints your ass. And he thought that was hilarious. So yeah. then he's running around telling everybody. And then we're talking about, do women have taints? Yes. Do they? Well, Isn't they have perineums. I think it's. I think it's basically the connective tract, right? Right, but it's very small in women. It's basically a wall. It's small it's, enough, but when it tears, it well, makes its presence known. Yeah. So we're. The, there was a woman there who had recently given birth, and right. she talked about how her. I said something about how doctors will sometimes cut it. Right. And she said it's much better to let it tear, which I didn't know. And she explained that when they cut it, sometimes they cut the muscle. Yeah. And when it tears, it just tears the skin, but the muscle doesn't tear. Right. And it's much, you want the muscle intact because if they cut the muscle, then when it heals, sex can be very painful for the rest of your life. Oh my God. So it's better to let it tear than to cut it. Well, That's what she said. Anyway. And then there's also the husband stitch. What's the husband stitch? Well, so historically, sometimes when doctors would sew the perineum back up, they would do an extra stitch tighten it a little? to tighten it a little for their husbands, which is a, an extreme violation. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Huh. The politics of the taint. <laughs> <laughs> That's why we call it tangentially speaking. <laughs> <laughs> from Dutch Christmas traditions to the politics <laughs> to the of the taint. taint. Yeah, but yeah. Chris, do you know that you're actually very Dutch? Uh, 
Am I? Yeah, culturally, a lot of your values are like very compatible oh, with Dutch people. Well, I I have a long-standing admiration for Dutch culture, and one of my best friends is Dutch, Martin van Dijvendijk. Yeah, who like when I met this guy, his father was a world famous dike expert. Mm-hmm. He he was working in Bangladesh redirecting rivers. Yeah, his sister worked at the Rijksmuseum and dressed in traditional Dutch. Yeah, clothing yeah, 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 yeah. and like wore clogs and the whole thing. Uh-huh. And he explained to me that his name meant pigeon on the dike. <laughs> and uh, I went to visit their family and his father says to me, so um, do you know where your family comes from? And I was like, yeah, I don't know, Ireland at some point. And he's like, oh, well, you know, we've traced our family back to the 1100s. And he gets yeah. out this scroll and rolls it out on the living room floor. And like, yeah, it's incredible. But yeah, I, I do. I, I've always admired Dutch culture, the, the, particularly the um, sort of opting for toler, intelligent tolerance mm-hmm. over ignorant denial. Right. Which is the American way. Yep. Uh, in terms of drugs, in terms of sexuality, mm-hmm. in terms of immigration, whatever. The, the World War II was kind of sticky. There were, I didn't, there's, <laughs> and also the colonial period, they weren't yeah. particularly tolerant, easygoing colonialists. No. Um, but recent Dutch history seems to be pretty cool. Well, so on uh, the colonial part, the thing that the Dutch have going for them is that most people don't know about it. And mm. the Belgians were so bad right. that everybody focuses on how bad the Belgians were and right. don't look at what the Dutch did. Yeah. Um, you know, the I think, I think so I'll, it, uh, this actually all does connect together, by the way. Oh. Um, because there's a narrative there, arc about there is to be revealed. <laughs> there is a narrative Stay arc. Stay tuned. Because the, the, that history that we talked about with the Spanish was where a lot of those Dutch values come from because mm. the 80 years war was horrific. Like the wars of religion that happened in the wake of the Reformation that also were tied into sort of nationalist aspirations were so bloody and so violent in the low countries that that policy of what's called chedoche, which is turning a blind eye of tolerance to virtually everything was became a survival strategy Mm. because when you do get hung up on those political or religious differences it leads to wholesale bloodshed that is really bad for everybody um and that it's also shaped by the environmental concerns of being a country that is constantly threatened with flooding well that's it i i guess part of i mean i didn't know that about the 80 years war in chedoka 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 but I, I, I was aware of the fact that it seems that there's like a, a sort of, uh, I don't know, there's like a, a respect for common sense mm-hmm. and a, an acknowledgement that our survival requires us to work together and trust one another, Yeah, which seems to be like, you know, individually, we're not going to keep the fucking ocean out of here, Yeah, but together we work together, we trust each other we're going to be okay. And I mean, the, the, just the attention to design and engineering mm-hmm. and competence in Holland is really impressive. Because it's a survival thing. And so the, yeah. the, the great example of this is that the little Dutch boy who sticks his finger in the dike and saves Holland is the most American story you can imagine. 
It's not a Dutch it's story. It's yeah. an individual who goes out there and heroically fucking solves things by doing one thing, right? Like it's this single variable solution magic from an individual right. magic pill. Yeah. It's not actually how shit worked in Holland. Right. You have community-based organizations that are constantly dealing with, you know, checking the polders, checking the dikes, making sure that everything is okay. We're having to work together. The culture is really blunt. Uh, everybody says exactly what's on their mind because mm. if we don't, it's an engineering culture because if we don't get all that shit out in the open and aren't constantly testing our assumptions, mm. we all fucking die mm. um, or Good our fields point. get flooded. So there's a respect for fact. Yeah, and for practicality. Yeah, yeah. There's a, there's like, a, and you can even hear that in the sort of rhythms of the way Dutch people speak. Mm-hmm. It's very, yeah. It, it's very kind of like a friendly. There's like an up, beat to it um but it's also um a little standoffish yeah there's like uh i'm happy to meet you but not too much yeah you know like you know you're welcome here but i'm gonna go do my thing yeah there's this yeah it's it's and then also the ability to fucking cut under because Mm. it's dutch people get and i think it's it's interesting like what cultures and what people have this like there's a real like Yes, we bullshit, and yes, we sort of flatter each other and stroke each other's dicks because we have to keep a sort of harmonious thing going on, which is also like, that's a, for my, you know, because I'm half Dutch, right? Mm. My dad's Dutch, my mom's American, so to some extent I understand this stuff uh, as an outsider. Right. Um, But, you know, my father, like, one of the recurring themes of my childhood was he would always talk about harmoniousness, Mm. which is him trying to translate this Dutch word gezellig, which is this feeling of coziness and everyone being sort of bonded together. You find the same concept. The Danes have hygge, right? right? Uh, you know, there's gemütlichkeit in, in, in German. German yeah. um, but it's this idea of like the community is good. Like the tribe is good. We're working together. Everything is, you know, on par. But, and if that starts to get threatened, because we understand that's the basis of our survival, everybody gets real fucking nervous. Yeah. And, you know, and then it starts to like, we attack, we attack, we attack, because we're trying to figure out how to get back to there right, and right. how to figure out what the problem is. You know, I had a, an experience with my buddy Martin one time in Amsterdam. Uh, I met him in Spain. He lived mm-hmm. in Spain for 20 years, and that's where we Because he's Sinterklaas. He is, actually. It's funny. He hates Christmas. He hates Christmas so much that he goes to Muslim countries oh, yeah. that time of year. But he came to visit my family when we were living... My parents lived in Pennsylvania, and he was there at Christmas one year, and he was a guest. And my mother, you know, they had the tree, and like they mm-hmm. were super into... And my mother actually gave him a Santa Claus outfit and asked him to dress up. <laughs> oh, shit. And he did. Oh, shit. He did. <laughs> and it was like one of the most uncomfortable moments in his life. That I have photos of him with the beard and the yeah, whole yeah, thing yeah. just looking at me. And he had like the little glasses, the round yep. brass glasses. And he was just like, get me the fuck, fuck out of here. here. Yeah. Um, but uh, what am I talking about? Oh, this the thing in Amsterdam. So one of the things that I always loved in Amsterdam was the the beautiful big windows mm-hmm. and no curtains. Mm-hmm. So you're walking down along the canal or whatever in the evening and you look in and there are people watching TV or having mm-hmm. dinner or whatever. And to me, that was, I attributed that to this sort of lack of shame 
and this like, um, you know, I'm living my life and I have nothing, there's no problem and blah, blah, blah. It, it was sort of like, um, you know, that tolerance towards sexuality or drugs or whatever, like, yeah, everything's cool. Anyway, we're walking along and I said, oh, I love how the Dutch people are just like, hey, you know, no shame. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was like, uh, well, actually, I think it's more that if you close your curtains, the neighbors will yeah. talk about you. And I thought, oh, okay. So that's the, you know, it's not that there's just this free, easygoing lack of shame. There's also a social control. There's oh, a huge amount. There's a mechanism of like, you don't want to piss off your neighbors. You don't want people gossiping. Your reputational damage, it yep. matters. Yeah, and and in that sense, it is like a hunter gatherer society that mm-hmm. people tend people accuse me of romanticizing hunter gatherers, but there are mechanisms in place to keep anybody from breaking rules that threaten the community. Yeah, and for they sure. are, I mean, they're severe. They can result in death. You know, yeah. if you're a douche in a hunter gatherer group, you'll be first. You'll be ridiculed, mm-hmm. like people joke about you. If that doesn't get the message through, somebody might take you aside and say, listen, Hunter, you know, you got to stop issue. doing that. Right. And if that doesn't work, you may have a hunting accident. Right. And like, oh, where's Hunter? Well, he fell off a cliff. Yeah. Oh, what a Poor tragedy. Guy. Poor guy. Poor guy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, you don't fuck around yeah. with that social control when cohesion is survival. Yeah. And that is yeah. for the, for the, I mean... This is true for a number of cultures, obviously, but it's particularly acute for people like the Dutch because cohesion is survival. Yeah. You know, obviously the Chinese also have very strong, like, cohesion is survival, the Japanese, Mm. right? That's And you have the proverbs around that, like, the loudest duck gets shot, the nail that sticks up gets hammered down. The early bird gets the the worm. (laughs) No, the early worm gets Gets eaten. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. But, and that's, that's, you know, I mean, the, you know, Richard Nisbet links that to the necessities of rice agriculture, where right. it's like a connected water system. Well, and, and it, all the sowing and harvesting has yeah. to be done together. Communally. With yep. large groups of people that need to be managed. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. There's, I don't know if you've read, uh, what's her name? She's at Stanford. She, she did research showing that, um, I had her on the podcast. I should remember her name. Anyway, she, she's a psychologist. Uh, and she did research showing that people from rice-based cultures actually have different cognitive processes. So mm-hmm. if you show them a photograph of like a guy in the foreground and like a bunch of different trees or animals in the background or whatever, and you ask them to describe the photo, they'll talk about what's going on in the background, yep. the community Whereas if you ask a Westerner, they'll talk about what's in the foreground yep. and they don't notice the background. So Richard Nisbet also in the geography of thought, like he also oh. has some of that research. They had a, an experiment that he did with um, some other researchers just about like fish tanks, pictures of fish tanks. Right. And the very, very different descriptions emerge from, you know, Western. Right. And same kind yeah, of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a recent book. No, so geography of thought is like like so much of the academic research that we talk about on this podcast or, you know, on Mixed Mental Arts. It's been around for 20 years uh, and most people just aren't aware of it right. because it's written in that horrible, dry academic style uh-huh. that nobody really enjoys reading except for those of us who Nerds. understand. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, she also did this. Um, uh, 
she's sort of famous for this research showing that schizophrenics, mm-hmm. they all hear voices, but the voices say different things depending on the cultures. So she had a bit of a splash when she showed that in, I guess, she, she was America, India, and Senegal, I think, mm-hmm. were the three countries where she looked into it. And she found that in America, the schizophrenics tended to hear a lot of like violent, kill yourself, you're a piece of shit, you're no good, you don't deserve to live. In India, they were saying things like, today's a good day to clean the kitchen, you know? <laughs> So basically, it's Siri. Yeah, exactly. You should be nicer to your sister. You know, they're like little affirmations. So, I mean, what an interesting thing, though. You yeah. know, like we we assume schizophrenia is this horrible, uh-huh. disturbing, you know, exorcist kind of thing. And it's like, well, no, in another culture, yeah. And don't we all hear voices? Voices in our head. That's what I was yeah, going to say. Like, yeah. It's also the other thing is, too, is it is that it is that individualist thing. I mean, the, the West loves to medicalize everything. Right. Like, everything becomes like a fixed condition. Like, right. we, I actually had a, um, had a conversation around this. So, you know, even the idea of homosexuality, right? Like, right. homosexuality in the West is an identity homosexuality in a lot of the rest of the world is an act right but doesn't necessarily say anything about your identity or your membership in a group yeah right and that's relatively recent in the west yeah. that's like late 1800s early 1900s yeah. i believe yeah yeah the word homosexual um meant it was an adjective mm-hmm. until then it was you know that was a homosexual relationship or a homosexual right. encounter or homose- but not you were a homosexual no, a homosexual didn't yeah. exist yeah and it becomes so complicated I, I mean i've talked about this maybe even with you on this podcast before it becomes when people ask me for example you know does homosexuality exist in other cultures <laughs> it's like fuck man like what you mean by that like let's determine what you mean by that like do men do boys suck older boys dicks in other cultures yes do they see that as something other than normal human behavior no do they have a rainbow flag that they use to like (laughs) organize their their subculture and like parade around in chaps (laughs) no No, they're not chaps <laughs> it's also the other thing too is it's it's group size like mm. if you can't you can't support active subcultures in a tribe of 150 ah. like there's not enough people there to be able to start creating lots and lots and lots of sub identities that that's always like the place that i always feel this most is with indian food because when you go to england you can find not only really good Indian food, but you can afford to start to get into regional differences. Mm. So you'll have Carolan food, you'll mm. have like right. Punjabi food, Rajasthani food. Like you can find all those sub things. In a country like the United States, it's just fucking Indian. Like you're not going to find, you know, and in fact, you find that even the Indian Pakistani differences aren't very strong. It's sort of like we're all from the subcontinent. That really bums me out. Like in Spain, when I first got there, there were no international. I mean, it was that was one of my big complaints about Spain. Mm -hmm. That when I first got there, it was like everyone smokes. Right. Fuck that. And uh, there's no there's no Asian food. Right. And so when I found one, it was like. 
Chinese tie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, what do you mean Chinese tie? <laughs> Uh, well, the worst bullshit. was, so I, when I worked at Cold Spring Harbor on Long Island, yeah. they had Chinese, Japanese, and they would go to these horrible, like, mass buffets, and there's, like, a fucking hot plate of Kung Pao chicken next to, like, cucumber rolls. Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you're doing neither of these things well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Uh, what were we talking about before? There was something before we got into the Chinese. Uh, the, oh, subcultures. Yeah. Yeah. Interestingly, but, but there are sub... I mean, in, in tribal societies, there are non-binary sexual identities. Mm-hmm. So yeah. there are what we would call transsexuals. Right. Right. Quite well known in... Uh, I think the anthropologists call them bear dash, yeah. which I think is insulting. So... I don't know why, but in French, I think it is. Um, and so the term now is two-spirited people or yeah, two-spirited yeah, yeah. ones. Um, but quite common. And uh, that someone who's born in a male body but knows they're a woman, right. like they're totally free to live as a woman and right. marry a man. And that's not... In fact, they're quite uh, prized as wives right. because they're strong. right. Yeah, I don't know how the sex works, but I guess it works. Listen, where there's a hole, there's a way, right? <laughs> like, you know, humans have never been that, have never seemed to struggle with, like, being resourceful around finding a way to get their sexual desires fulfilled. Yeah, although, you know, in many hunter-gatherer societies, uh, oral sex is unknown. Yeah. you And... I remember reading this. Chris, study. this sounds like a missionary project that you could be, <laughs> get behind. You, you just told me like Chris's doormat says "go away," uh-huh. and he said that it's mostly for people who want to come and talk to him about God. <laughs> but I feel like the missionary movement that Chris could get behind so is introducing oral sex, sex to, to world, other cultures, to the underprivileged. Yeah, exactly. There are people who don't know about blowjobs, cunnilingus, or hoka hoka. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> there are other ways to do it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I actually had a woman on the podcast who was uh, in Africa and she fell in love with a Maasai dude mm-hmm. and um, like lived with him for a while and, and she wrote a book about it. Um, I should be able to like reference everyone by name, but at this point they've all just faded. <laughs> Check the archives, people. She's in there somewhere. Um, anyway, she said like there was no oral sex mm-hmm. among the Maasai, and the reason being that they there's no water, they don't bathe very often, oh. and so you don't want to be going downtown, you know, when nobody's been picking up garbage. That's for interesting. A few weeks. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that could be one reason, maybe depending where they live. Whereas in the South Pacific on an island yeah, where everyone's obviously. bathing all the time, it's a different scene. It's yeah. nice and salty down there and fresh. <laughs> <laughs> Smells of papaya coconut. and coconut. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, so you were off in South Africa with your beloved and she's back here now? You guys Yep, are- she uh, just got her employment authorization oh. and her social security number. So oh, that's congratulations. That's uh, an yeah. ordeal, yeah. especially in the Trump age. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean, it's actually very interesting because we talk about this all the time because, you know, what... Like, 
there's uh, there's obviously all sorts of crazy political rhetoric uh, in the United States around immigration, but there's also crazy political rhetoric around immigration in South Africa yeah. because they have lots of people coming over from Zimbabwe, and you know the people who come over from Zimbabwe tend to be better educated, harder working, all that sort of stuff. So it's not even you know in the United States, right? The Mexican immigration. They, they tend to be harder working, but they're not necessarily better educated in the first generation. Right. With Zimbabwe, they're often better educated in the first generation. Mm. Um, so it's a double threat. It's a double threat. Um, and then, you know, they've had killings and around. They're black. And, and they're black, so they can blend in fairly seamlessly, mm. but they're not of the same tribe. They don't speak the same language. Mm. Um, but, you know, so there's there's all sorts of politics. And then there's everybody else that comes down there. Because, again, if you're from sub-Saharan Africa, how many countries are there that have a relatively functional economy? There aren't that many. So lots and lots of people go to South Africa. Right. Um, but the, the, the real thing is, is that, you know, I mean, we need meritocratic labor mobility globally. Like, that's what's actually healthy for the world. And obviously, there's so much fear around, but what if I'm the person who can't compete? Um, and so you get full on violence and then these horrible protectionist mechanisms, but it's not healthy and it's not good. Um, but why, okay. Devil's advocate. Why isn't it better to have those jobs for people from our country? Why is it, why is it healthier for some, you know, hyper-educated Zimbabwean to come in and take my managerial job? Firstly, often you don't actually have the capacity within your country to do those jobs or the willingness. So, for example, with the Mexican case, right, in the United States, when they have tried to stop illegal immigrants from working, it turns out that there are no Americans who are willing to go out there and fucking okay. sweat for no money and pick fruit. Right. Then why not pay a decent wage? You could pay a decent wage, but then that's going to bump up the cost of all fruits and vegetables and everything else. Right. But then you've got Americans making that money who will buy the fruits and vegetables and, listen, and the whole economy seems to me to be healthier. If you want to do that. But, right. But the, the Trump administration, for example, seems to be stopping both things from happening. I don't think that Trump is pro minimum wage. Well, forget decent Trump. Healthcare. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm, but, I'm just arguing that because I've heard that argument about Americans aren't willing to, you know, pick yeah, yeah, yeah. rutabagas for two two dollars an hour. Well, Nobody then, should be willing to pick a rutabaga. There's no right. reason to have exactly. a rutabaga. What, yeah, I don't even know what a rutabaga is. I it's just some like sort the, of tournament. I like turnip the word. Thing. It's a great word. Rutabaga. Um, but yeah, so I mean, the cheap labor of immigrants seems to me to be exploitative. A lot of it is, but it doesn't mean that it's not a better deal for the immigrants who then are able to send money home to their families. Right, but it's a better deal because we or someone has fucked over their country largely through centuries of colonialism and, and corrupt the CIA, governments. The CIA fucks know, over yeah. our bends in Guatemala. Yeah. Who tries? Yeah, so, I mean, the whole thing seems to be part of a system of oppression. Right. You know, these guys who are coming, these Mexicans who are coming and, you know, working in chicken plants in, mm -hmm. in Arkansas or wherever it is, they're making, you know, three or four dollars an hour. They've got no health care. They're living 12 to a room. They're, they're, you know, three shifts in a bed. So the bed's yep. warm the minute you get in it because the last guy just got up. That doesn't seem to me to be something we want to be supporting. Well, what's the question is, what's the alternative? The right? alternative is you pay $15 an hour for, you know, a national minimum wage 
and chicken processing plants have to pay that. They have to check the ID of the people they hire. So we're not getting illegal immigrants coming in. We've got poor Americans who are making 15 bucks an hour. They would be willing to do that for yeah. 15 bucks an hour. So the, I, I resent the, the phrasing that I hear so often of Americans aren't willing to do these jobs. That's just another way of saying American companies aren't willing to pay a decent wage for that labor. Yeah. So why not just like call it slavery? Because that's essentially what it is. Oh, because slavery is dirty, and we know that's bad. Oh yeah. But right. if you de facto have that the system, fuck out of brown people isn't bad. No, yeah. but the, that's the the it's the same thing as the Stalin Hitler argument. Why is why is Hitler seen as so much worse than Stalin? Because Stalin helped us beat Hitler. Yeah, because Stalin helped us beat Hitler, and because he didn't uh, put people in gas chambers, he starved them to death. Right. And you know they're they're not. It's, wasn't Stalin Jewish? No, he was Georgian. Oh. And his mother wanted him to be a priest. Oh. <laughs> he flunked out of seminary, so um, oh. or he left the seminary. Um, but but it's you know it's it's the same thing as first degree versus second degree murder. Like you know you can have def- I mean sharecropping was de facto slavery, right. but because it wasn't officially slavery and you'd set things up, you know I mean that even in terms of South Africa, you know Mandy and I talk about this all the time, like. The big mistake of the apartheid government was they made it explicit what they were doing. Hmm. They're like, we're racist as fuck. We're segregating. This is the law. Like, it's super out in the open. You can achieve exactly the same thing in the United States without making it explicit. And then the world largely turns a blind eye. Oh, isn't it weird that all the black people live in the same communities? They don't have good access to employment. They can't get into the universities. You know, oh, we have to try and do something to fix this. Yeah. Yeah. You know, but, you know, you you have, again, it's plausible deniability. You You can't deny it when it's written into the laws of the country and there are fucking signs that everybody can photograph and when you have caspers rolling through the streets rounding people up and shuttling them back into the communities yeah well that i mean casilda talks about that all the time right she's my wife's from mozambique Mm -hmm. and she's indian so Mm -hmm. she's the sort of middle colored whatever you know not black not white um but she talks about how it's so much easier to deal with the racism of south africa than with america because in south africa it's like you know, someone will say, well, I don't like black people. Right. Like, okay, good. No we way. now know where you stand. Yeah, exactly. Whereas here, it's like, oh, no, I love black people. But, yeah. uh, oh, please don't touch that. And, yeah. you know, and they're watching you in the store. And there's all this like, yeah, it's not out on the fucking table. So, right. you know, you said it's their great mistake. And I understand, I agree with you. But on, on another level, it's like, let's get it out on the fucking table. If we're yeah. going to keep the black people, you know, corralled up, let's be honest about it it's also the same thing with sexism by the way because Mm. sexism it tends to be in a lot of places it's much more overt right Mm. like you know if you go to the arab world Mm. it's sexist like they're very clear it's very transparent can't drive drive. women can't drive like they are expected to be covered like all of that we know that in the united states it's much more subtle and insidious and it's not out in the open and you know you may de facto achieve the same results but it's never been made explicit, hmm. right? Yeah, although, I mean, can we really compare the sexism of America to Saudi Arabia? No, listen, if I was a woman, I would much rather live in the United States than live in Saudi Arabia, yeah. right? But what I'm saying is is that, you know, 
and 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 you know obviously we in many ways we went from sort of explicit sexism to now having gotten to this level of implicit sexism which is much much better mm. but at the same time i think that and even a lot of the sort of the the political tensions right now are that if you're a woman the sexism in the united states is obvious mm. if you're a man you're often largely oblivious to it so it's because, like racism where black people see what exactly. white people don't Huh, yeah, yeah. As a white man, I don't see shit. White man, man. yeah. What are you talking about? Well, but that's the funny thing is, and then you've had the white man reaction where it's been like, they're suddenly feeling a little bit of like not getting the same opportunities that they used to get, or they're being a little bit more competition and they're fucking freaking out. And it's like, welcome to how most of the world has had to live for... Right, so eliminating sexism and racism in a way functions like immigration where your privileged safe position is being threatened by that's other right. people there's more competition that's right and that, yeah. what that's what it really comes down to and even in the apartheid context like the actual origins of apartheid were the english were fighting the boers right and they couldn't another, another example of dutch assholery by yes. the way yeah yeah no the boers yeah yeah. yeah. but but it's it's also like when you talk about sort of the 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 dark side of of the dutch culture it is that there is such a relentless focus on trade and economic opportunity that Mm. human rights don't mean shit right right? which is why the dutch colonial experience was what it was Mm. and which is why to a certain extent you know the dutch made such great collaborators in world war ii Mm. there was the dutch resistance and you know like obviously because the sins of the grandfather are always visited on the sun, whether we like to believe that or not, like, you know, my grandfather was in the Dutch resistance. So, you know, but one of the things, for example, I met um, a restaurant owner in Morocco who was Dutch and his father fought for the Nazis. Like, and he's like, listen, one of the things that no Dutch person wants to talk about is that some of the last SS holdouts were Dutch Mm. and, you know, in Holland. Mm. Um, so obviously, in any war scenario, people go different ways. Like there, yeah. there, there were people who fought for American independence, and there were loyalists. Um, you know, there were people who fought against the Nazis, and there were people who collaborated. But I think that a lot of what that collaborationist tendency is about is you're just so focused on being practical and right. you know engaging with the new reality and making a living that you know your principles. There are no principles. Your only principle is making money. Yeah. Um, but so the Boers, you know, I mean, the the joke among the Boers is always that the Boers were only good at three things. Riding horses, shooting, and shooting Englishmen while riding horses. Right. Um, and so they, you know, they had this horrible guerrilla warfare. Uh, the concentration... The first guerrilla warfare. The first guerrilla warfare in many ways. Yeah. And the concentration camp was invented oh, by the British right. to basically, because that was the only way they could control the Boers. Yeah. Um, Winston and fucking Churchill. Churchill, yeah. yep. And then basically they realized that it was an unwinnable war and the only way they could do it was to come to an agreement between the English and the Boers. And the Boers said, listen, we care about job opportunities, we care about economic opportunity, so let's have a system where only we can get jobs, the English and the Boers. And they said, well, what, what do we have in common? We're both white. So we're going to have, and obviously racist ideas were floating around. And so the apartheid system started off as basically denying people access to the labor market. Um, and that came out of the Boer War. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, have you ever seen a film called Breaker Morant? Yes. Oh, it's a great, great movie. movie. Yeah. Yeah. About this yep. very, this moment in yep. history. 
it was about the end of that war and some yep. of the weird that was a great movie though. it was a great uh, movie yeah. also zulu bruce beresford was the yeah. director yeah yeah it's a great movie um zulu i haven't seen oh zulu is so good huh. um so zulu is uh, all about rourke's drift so it, it, it's a classic British propaganda. I mean, it's classic human propaganda, regardless of culture. But there, basically, there was, uh, there was the Zulu army. So Shaka Zulu organizes the Zulus and basically starts pushing back against all the white invaders. Um, and so there's, I can't remember, it, it's, I think it might be Ishandwala, but there's a big battle. The Zulus fuck up the English, just mm. royally fuck them up. And then that Zulu army, this massive Zulu army, comes on this encampment, Rourke's Drift, which is only 300 people. It's very much like Thermopylae or anything like that. Um, and they basically, this this English garrison of it's actually Welsh fusiliers or something like that manages to hold off the entire Zulu army. Mm. Um, and you know, basically they have, you know, massed ranks of firing and all of that stuff. And essentially the Zulus realized that, you know, having, you know, they tested them, they lost a bunch of men and then they were like, okay, we're going to leave you guys be. Mm. Um, but so what happened was, is that the great defeat was, you know, not really talked about. And then they emphasized, you know, Rourke's Drift, this great heroic thing. Um, sort of like the Alamo. Yeah. If the Americans hadn't died. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love how some, like, there are these cultures that celebrate losing. <laughs> you know? There's, like, in Catalonia, like, the big holiday is... Mm -hmm is celebrating this war against the Spanish that the Catalans lost. Yeah. But it's still every year, like, remember the... Well, you know? and what's the place in downtown Barcelona? The There's like the, the, the big sort of market that they've turned into the... What is it? Borsa? The Bocaria? Is it Or I can't remember. What they turn it into? There's like they're they're they were gonna build this mall and then they found these ruins underneath. Oh yeah, the the market in um, the the yeah, the it's in the um, the El Born. Yeah, the Born. Yeah, yeah. And that's a big focus of the Catalan identity as well, right? Yeah. Is what happened there. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Roman ruins there. Yeah. Under it. Yeah. There's, I mean, it's, it goes way back. Yeah. I love, there was one of my favorite bars in Barcelona. You would, uh, it was built into the wall of the Roman, um, you know, the wall around mm -hmm. the old, the original Roman town. Um, and you, you know, you'd be sitting there and you put your feet up on the wall and it's like that stone was placed there by a Roman, which is pretty amazing. It's fucking crazy. Yeah. yeah. And it, now it's just the wall of the bar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I found something really comforting about Bars living in Barcelona, um, in that constant awareness of centuries, mm -hmm. uh, it made it's how to articulate this. It sort of made my own concerns with growing older and my own mortal demise diminish them mm -hmm. because the context was of centuries and centuries. Yeah. You know what I mean? And in America, I think I feel that I feel an absence of that. There's like a perspective that that diminishes anxiety somehow, existential anxiety. Well, and that's also why so many Americans try to be hyphenates, 
because they feel that lack of history. What do you mean hyphenates? Well, the hyphenated, hyphenated Americans, Irish American, oh, African American, oh, right, Russian right. American. And it's because they feel that profound lack of history. 300 years is not enough. Like there's a need for a deeper sort of ancestral past and some desire mm. to try and connect through that. And I mean, you know, you talked about your Dutch friend who has out the scroll, our family, we can trace it back to the 1100s. What do you know about your relative from the 1100s? Yeah. Fucking dog shit. There's no historical record. Yeah. But people want to feel like one thread in a larger narrative structure. Mm. And, you know, when you have that sense of connection, there's the feeling that you will continue in some sense. And that also that, you know, you have roots, right? Like, yeah. you don't want to be rootless. Well, that's why I'm a, I'm a big fan of the Pittsburgh Steelers, you know, because... <laughs> I want to be part of something larger that will. Well, and speaking of lost me. causes, right? Like that's a very lost American cause. Football in general yeah. appears to be a lost cause. Yeah. yeah, it's strange to have grown up. I mean, you grew up in in Holland, right? Till you were fourteen or something. No, I grew up. I was born in Saudi, lived in Brazil, lived in Greece, lived in England. Oh Jesus! All yeah. Right. All right. So you came here from England, not from Holland. From England, right, yeah. Right. Which is also where the Puritans came from. Uh-huh. So the Puritans came from Holland to America. Oh. People don't realize what? that. So the, the Puritans actually... I thought they were British. They were. And oh. the first place they went looking for religious tolerance was Holland. Uh, and then they discovered that uh, their children were becoming a little too tolerant in that sort of Dutch climate of you know, sexual freedom and everything else. Even in the 1600s? In the, even in the like 1600s. Really? And so they, and they were also worried that their children were learning Dutch, which obviously having heard the word chadocha and chazelich, you could imagine <laughs> that you don't want your children saying that. Um, and so they, that's when they buggered off to the new world. No shit. Yeah. But they actually, the Puritans came from Holland. Okay. As a, how long were they in Holland? Uh, they were there for a few years. I can't remember how yeah. long, but they were there for long God, enough. I that... wish they'd stayed. Yeah, can you imagine? <laughs> you guys would be all uptight. <laughs> no, I think we would have turned them around. It's so? it's like the it's like the the thing in um, in uh, Younger's book Tribe, right? Yeah. About uh, about how you know the English who went to the Native American side always wanted to get back to being Native American yeah. the Native Americans who came to the English never side never went. wanted yeah. to go the other way yeah. so you know I think once you go Dutch you know you don't go you back, don't go back. yeah huh. Sebastian Junger I, I sometimes think what it must be like to be him and hear people bantering around the perfect storm Oh, it was the perfect storm of this. Anyway, like, hey, that's mine. I'm mine. That My IP. I'm the, exactly. I'm the perfect storm guy. I mean, it's really entered the language, yeah. and that's going to be a phrase for centuries. Probably. But was it a phrase before him? I don't think so. I think he invented. He came it. up with it. Well, that's I mean, pretty he cool. He wrote the book called "The Perfect." Yeah. Story. I assume that's the origin of it. Might be, or maybe he got it from somewhere else. Maybe in which provenance. Case? In which Providence. case, you should just sit down and, and shut, shut the, the fuck, fuck up. up. And give credit where credit is due. That's right. How come we don't know that? Yeah. I was thinking, you know, I think about that sometimes, a phrase, and you'll be, you know, like, who was the first person who said that? William Shakespeare is usually A the lot answer. of them. Yeah. I mean, you read a Shakespeare play, yeah. you come across every page yeah. or something. Um, like the phrase I was thinking the other day, fast asleep. Yeah. What does that mean? Fast asleep? Slow asleep. But I assume it's fastener. Yeah. It's hold fast, being, 
like fastened to You're something solidly in solidly. the land attached to sleep and does that come from ships yeah like you know like he's in his berth and he's like fast that like could be fast something do you but, do you ever use edim online no i love it it's a it's an online etymology dictionary totally free mm. and i i go on there and look things up all the time and mm. then you find out what what is the etymology yeah yeah, someone said that. Yeah, for the first time. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Really interesting how that can be a legacy like that. This thing you say. Yep. Um, well, and then also how those words evolve and shift, and then also how they get exapted, right? So they start off having one function, and then they get moved into some totally. Like yeah. my favorite example of that is always, uh, you know, um, so in in Friends, right, Joey. Uh, is keeps on talking about how something is a moo point. <laughs> moo point, and and they're like, "What do you What do you mean?" And he's like, "Moo, like it's the kind of dumb point that a cow would make." <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you know, you can totally see like he's reinterpreted it. It's evolved. It's mutated a little bit. He's right. exapted it, and that that would then become the actual definition. Exapted, by the way, exapted is a cool word. Exaptation meaning something being used for something for which it wasn't intended. Like, for example, the Roman wall being used as the wall of a bar. Right, right. That was not what it was intended for, right. but now it's taken on this other, or being you, the wall being used as a footholder for Chris Ryan. That right. was not what it was originally intended or for. Or the nose being used to hold up your glasses. Yeah. Yeah, so it originally came, my understanding of that term came from Stephen Jay Gould's and Leventon's uh, essay, The Spandrels of San Marco. Yes, that's yeah, right. About acceptation. It's a great essay uh, on evolutionary theory. Um, what were we saying before I got all pretentious and pedantic? <laughs> no. Uh, we were talking about... Oh, oh yeah. how, th- how acceptation can actually happen through misunderstanding yeah all the time you know so he he it wasn't that he was like oh i'm gonna reapply or repurpose this phrase it's he thought he understood it Mm -hmm. and he was using it in a way that made sense to him and you know i've most of my life my girlfriends have been from other cultures and other Mm -hmm. languages so they make a lot of these mistakes yeah that they think they got it yeah and and like i i was with a woman who uh thought the phrase was below job (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of amazing it's kind of amazing yeah i was with another woman who a spanish woman first time she saw me naked she said oh i've never been with a circus-sized man before (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing But my favorite is... Uh, no, wait a minute. Just to be clear, is a circus-sized man a big <laughs> well, penis what, or a little Well, that was my question. Yeah. Exactly. Like, <laughs> it's giants or... or, <laughs> or <midget laughs> uh, but uh, what was the... Other? Oh, the... Uh, so I'm with Casilda. We're watching this uh, Coen Brothers movie, Oh Brother, where... Oh, I'm which is amazing. And uh, there's this scene. We're in a cinema, and there's a scene where they they crawl up this hill and there's a clan rally going mm-hmm. on and the you know, hoods and fires and ride around on horses and all that. And Casilda leans over to me and she says, is that the couscous clan? <laughs> <laughs> I would actually quite like to join the couscous clan. To, you know, Great food. Yeah, Tuesdays. exactly. You know, it's like, we love international cuisine. <laughs> We're, the We're so clan. cosmopolitan. <laughs> exactly. Um, Ross yeah. Al-Hanout, anybody? Um, <laughs> 
But the, yeah, I mean, I think that that acceptation can happen like that all the time. My dad has, uh, you know, my mom and I always have like a few that my dad has done from Dutch to English. So he once said that he wanted to go and climb Mount Fiji with me, right? Mm. And of course, Mount Fuji... It's pretty tall. Right. Mount Fiji is probably about six feet above sea level. <laughs> there is no Mount Fiji. And then yeah. the other one was is that he said that he was going to go and snooze with the Russians. He meant schmooze, <laughs> but like it just kind of conjures up this image of communal napping <laughs> yeah. with a bunch of hairy Russian men. Yeah, like in one of the baths. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, but so... And that, so I got one yeah, for you. Yeah. One that we have misunderstood and accepted without knowing it. Um the exception proves the rule. The rule. Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean to you? Um, it's that the rule is generally true, and then there's this one odd outlier that, because it's an outlier, basically goes to prove the general principle actually holds most of the time. Right. That's what the phrase means to most people, but right. that's the opposite of what it actually means. It actually comes from prove. Like a mathematical proof yeah. is from the Latin provar or yeah, Spanish yeah, yeah. provar, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Which means to test. Uh, the exception tests the That's rule. amazing, which makes a lot more sense. It makes a lot more sense, but it's yeah. the opposite. So yeah. when someone says, you know, oh, that's an exception, you're like, well, the exception yeah. proves the rule. Like, see, like that exception somehow reinforces what yeah. I was saying. No, it doesn't. The exception questions, yep. that throws into doubt sense. what you're saying and tests it. Yeah. yeah. That yeah. makes a lot more sense. Yeah. So there's one we use. Yeah. And there's all sorts of shit that, yeah. that we say. We think we know what it means. And we have no yeah. fucking idea. But so, okay, this also, <clears throat> there's, a, there's an interesting conversation here, I think, right? Because our frame of reference is evolutionary, as, a, as I think, yeah. in general, right? right? right. So it uh, becomes what we think it is? Well, but but so, I mean, yeah. So yeah. And then as opposed to uh, one of my favorite organizations on the planet, the Académie Française, Right, so the Académie Française is the official board that decides what is French and what is not. Right, and I think the average age of the people there is uh, seventy-five. <laughs> yeah, seventy-five. They're all mostly white men, and then they routinely turn people down. It's a super exclusive club. But so you have this, you know, very sort of def- self-appointed, definitive authority that seeks to say what is French is not, what is not. They publish dictionaries. Right. They do the whole thing. <clears throat> As opposed to the more evolutionary process, which is, you know, how much do you try and define what the language is and how much do you just let it evolve wherever the fuck it goes? Right. And then understand that essentially whatever the community has decided is is consensus is probably what you should go for. Yeah. Well, yeah, I I mean, what's disinterested mean to you? Uh, Yeah, so disinterested, right? Most people think it means uninterested. Right. But we already have a word for that. Yeah. Yeah. Disinterested is without an interest in the thing. So you want a disinterested judge, but not an uninterested judge. See, that annoys me because it's like there's already a word for that. Yep. And this word is actually quite useful. Yep. Objective. I guess we could always just say objective. Um, But... Yeah, I mean, that migration into like sloppiness does bother me. Although I have to say grammatically, mm-hmm. I I have friends who correct some of my grammatical mistakes and I just feel annoyed. It's like, oh, yeah. come on. This is the way people talk. Get with the fucking right. program. And there, there's clearly like a, a balance there. Cause like it, if you answer the phone and yeah. someone says, uh, is Hunter there? Do you say, this is I? 
No. Or this is he. This is no. he. That's what they say. Yeah. This is he. Like, that sounds so weird to it me. It is. And, and the point is, but the, even there, like, what is that? That's virtue signaling. You're not actually doing that because it's communicative. You're doing that because you want to show I'm an educated person who knows these arcane rules that most people don't know or right, follow. Right. In the same way as the Académie Française, right? right? Like, right. it's really about trying to achieve status. Like, yeah. that's the evolutionary function there. And so I think that's the, the question is always, like, what goal are you actually serving? Are you serving communication or are you serving sort of some sort of status signaling? Which gets back to whether we collaborate with the Nazis or not. Yeah, which do we, Chris? Is this should we even be saying this is a question? Um, the answer is, but even even Deal there with the real world, Hunter. Well, <laughs> I mean, the Nazis are in charge, man. You're not going to push them out of the country. I mean, you're not going to save the Jews, Hunter. Just well, but so go with the flow, man. <laughs> the Nazi hippie, like. <laughs> exactly. The Nazi collaborating hippie. hippie. I mean, I mean, hippies aren't in the resistance. They're not like, I'm going to go risk my no, life to not. blow shit up. No, they're no, definitely not. Too but high. The, but the actually, even even the like the post facto narrative of like like standing in 2019, we know the Nazis were bad. And if you ask people why were the Nazis bad, the follow up is the Holocaust. But actually, they didn't even know about the Holocaust until 1945. Right. Some people did and some people didn't. But specifically, there's a book by uh, Werner Salors, who is himself a German. And he has a quote in in there from called The Temptation of Despair. And he has a quote in there from Eisenhower, where he's Eisenhower said, we are told that the American GI does not know what he is fighting for. Let's send people into these camps now that we've liberated these camps, take photographs and then popularize those photos so that people know what this war was about. But that wasn't necessarily what the war was being fought for in 1939 or 1941, right? The causus belli at that point was the invasion of Czechoslovakia, the invasion of Poland, and so on and so forth. So it was more about territorial expansion yeah. rather than it, was, it wasn't a moral war necessarily at that point, unless you're talking about self-sovereignty and self-determination as a moral right. act. Right. But but the there wasn't, I think that's the interesting thing, is, is that the... The the hindsight is twenty twenty, and the moral clarity that we have on World War II wasn't something that was available to people. And there were lots of people who conscientiously opposed the war as just like opposing any war. Yeah, Robinson Jeffers, who yeah. was the most popular poet in the country before the war, he opposed it, and he was obscure and lost for decades afterwards. Yeah. Um, yeah, although, I mean, wasn't fascism recognized as anti-democratic, anti... I mean, you, you mentioned, you know, it's like a moral um, dimension of freedom. Right. Now, we understand freedom in capitalist society is freedom for some people and right. conditional and all that. But still, um, I would say in the 40s, it was recognized that by the GIs that they were fighting against an absolutist... Um, uh, an enemy to self-determination. And what was communism? Well, communism, because they were allied, I think <laughs> they just agreed to not think about it too Well, much. exactly. And also, I mean, the real evils of communism weren't apparent until later. Well... Right? I mean, Stalin, uh, you know, the, the great, the, the famines... The, and the, the Holodomor had already happened. The, the, what, the what? The Holodomor. That's the uh, the Ukrainian famine. Oh, that had already happened? Yeah. 
That's the 1920s and 30s. So there's a, there's a, a, I mean, but who knew about that? Well, so that's 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 the real question is, and how widely was it publicized? Right. And American communists downplayed right. everything that Stalin had, was doing, the purges, all that stuff. Right. And, you know, Stalin was the great enemy, and then they turned him into Uncle Joe for right. the sake of World War II, where now you turn him into this sort of, like, benevolent Russian uncle with a cute mustache who, you know, again, is like Santa Claus. Have you seen Reds? Uh, Warren Beatty. Yes. Isn't it about John? John Reed. John Reed. Yeah. Right, right. The only American buried in the wall of the Kremlin, I believe. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember enjoying that movie. I haven't seen it in decades. but Yeah. It was a good movie. Yeah. Warren Beatty's an interesting character. That's a guy he, I'd love to have met. Um, I once sat in a Chinese restaurant where it was me, Warren Beatty, and one other guy who Warren Beatty was having lunch with, and they had a very loud conversation about their wives and children. And I was like, oh, this is the sort of thing a tabloid would love. Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was very bizarre. Huh. Um, but, you know, yeah. neither me nor the Chinese waiters really cared. So yeah, that's cool. <laughs> yeah. um, did you see, um, he did a film about a politician who... Oh, Bullworth was so good. That was great. I love that movie. Yeah, really. But he also like he was he had like Bonnie and Clyde. He had Reds. Oh, he had lots of great great movies. movies. Then it sort of seemed like he disappeared. He did Heaven Can Wait with yeah. uh, That's right, the football movie. That was great. Wasn't he a football player who was reincarnated as Lily? Well, it was with Lily tomlin maybe i don't know i don't know know. (laughs) he did the heaven's gate that was a huge disaster yeah like that was sort of the end of his thing directing oh really yeah with uh yeah it was like a big budget disaster oh okay um but yeah he had a string of really i mean shampoo was yeah yeah, but he didn't direct that i don't well and also wasn't the uh carly simon song you're so vain about About him him? yeah yeah Yeah, that's immortality right there no, no, that's that's infamy, um, but yeah. But to 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 go back to the the Nazi communist question, like all of this stuff becomes narratives that are managed, or or the mm. Nazi communist question, or you know Dutch colonialism, or Svartopete, or you know any of these things. These narratives are created to justify our behavior in the yeah. same way that we personally rationalize our behavior yeah. and then you know they're also used to justify doing shitty things to people you demonize people you villainize people and then often these narratives get accepted out of the context in which they're in so you take something like Soir de Pete, which means one thing in the sort of context of Dutch culture but then you exapt it to American culture and suddenly you know those images and everything else has a totally different meaning and then suddenly and this is happening now in Holland where suddenly people are like why is the elves bad like I don't understand like why is it hard to beat bad and you know it's possible that there are underlying racist reasons for there for that but that's not necessarily the context in which it's meant Mm. Um, and people need to be uh, you know I think that's that's the whole thing is is that you know we all come freighted with these narratives and things that we picked up from our cultures and it it takes time to examine those things and we need support and and that's that's sort of the moment that i guess my wish chris would be that rather than being so hard on each other that we would be a little bit more patient with each other to help all of us unpack our narratives and figure out if there are stories we can work together towards that 
allow everybody a chance to shine. Mm. Yeah. That's your wish? That's my wish. Yeah. <laughs> For this Christmas season. <laughs> can we get can we get your Dutch buddy back in the Santa suit? But you're right. It's it's the the narratives are so interesting in the way that they um are managed, the term you used, which is very interesting because it suggests that they're are people or organizations in charge of that management, which I guess there are in many cases, but I feel like they also, there's also an organic mm-hmm. way in which ideas that serve the function of the power that's flowing become popular because they serve that power. Yeah. And and, and there's no one choosing to do that. There's just this like, it's like water mechanism. running down yeah. a hill. It just flows around obstacles and toward low ground. Right. I think that that's happened with Darwin to a large extent, like in ways that would drive him crazy. Yeah. Because um, he was so much about compassion and cooperation and to so much of his thinking has been used to justify ruthless individual winner take all capitalism. Well, it, his ideas have been exapted, right? Like, right. and they've, you know, whether it was intentional or whether it was malicious, but to justify things that were absolutely not what he was about. Right. right. And Francis Galton was a core part of that. And lots right. of other people the have. movement. And, yeah. 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 I mean, and I just, you know, in civilized to death, I write about this, like how civilization congratulates itself mm-hmm. for ruthless murder. Yeah. You know, most of the people that we would, you know, have been taught to uh, admire as historical heroes, Columbus and, you know, mm-hmm. Cortez and, you know, whatever, pick your fucking history, uh, Custer or Buffalo Bill. I mean, they were all lunatics. They were murderous fucking nightmare people. Mm-hmm. And yet they're, you know, they changed the world. Yeah, but they're useful symbols to serve yeah. some sort of agenda. Right, right, right. And that's that's the real point is, is that people have an agenda. There's a reason why they resonate or tell certain stories and why they distort stories to tell them in a particular but, way. But my point about it being this macro level is I think a lot of, most people don't know what their no. agenda is. They don't understand well, in the same how way they're that, plugged into this larger thing. Well, that in the same way that most people don't understand that they're misusing the exception proves the rule. Right. Like exactly. there is just right. this evolutionary exactly force it. and these things end up at these places and people are doing these things and they don't understand why they're doing them because individual humans us included are dumb like it's (laughs) well yeah i mean we're it's like someone said we'll never understand the brain because by definition a brain can't be complex enough to understand something with the complexity of the brain right it's like a what's that called is that a malapropism or what some circular reasoning thing you know like uh you know, a jar can never be big enough to contain, contain the jar yeah, yeah, yeah. of the same size, right? So the brain can never understand the brain. Yeah. I don't know that. I think also even even things like saying like trying to understand the brain already shows that you don't understand the brain at a very high resolution. Like 
humans tell stories, right? And 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 the the nature of stories is, is that stories capture certain details and leave certain details out, right. Right? right? So we tell a we tell a story. Well, not if you've heard my mother tell a story. Really? She no, no nothing details. is left out. <laughs> no so the details. point is is that your mother is the one who's going to figure out the brain. But it, but it, <laughs> stories luck. stories and metaphors yeah. are all compromised, uh-huh. right? So let's say that I tell I make an analogy like usually when people talk about the brain they talk about neurons as being like electrical wires right right? that's the metaphor and that's going to capture certain things right Right. there are electrical impulses they are being transmitted and everything else but also leaves a whole bunch of things out right there's information processing that's happening at synapses there are things that are required to trigger action potentials right it exists in the gut yeah you leave the gut out right Right. most of the neurotransmitters in your body are in your gut they're not in your brain yeah yeah yeah, you're right. It's interesting how metaphors uh, sort of circumscribe the conversation. That's right. I think in the 1800s, the brain was generally described as a steam engine. That's right. You know, or a plumbing a system, yep. you know. Yeah, hydraulic system. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So what do you think the next metaphor for the brain will be? I think my, my hope would Cloud, be... cloud-based. <laughs> oh my but God. that's like a Rupert Sheldrake yeah. thing, right? With the morphic resonance. Like, yeah. And I think actually... I've sort of been in a cloud-based brain, now that I think of it, uh, metaphor most of my life. I think the brain is a receiver rather than a a processor. processor. Yeah. Yeah. I would also say that you're already seeing a lot of sort of hive mind narratives, right? Sure. The distributed parallel processing computer, right? Right. That, you know, uh, the the knowledge maybe, and this is sort of like the cloud-based thing, right? The knowledge, there's a certain amount of knowledge that's instantiated in a local, in one location, a particular brain, Mm. but that ultimately what's really going on is a distributed processing model where you know there's within a tribe or within like an extended tribe there's lots of information being processed right there's a collective repository of knowledge and do you think that constitutes an organism that's i i that's how i conceptualize it like i think there is one big human organism and i think that there are levels of functionality and dysfunctionality within the systems of how they're working one big so uh, like, like well there's the gaia hypothesis that the earth itself is an organism yeah you would locate humanity as an organism humanity well, so itself firstly yeah i mean the, the question is always see i i think i think that you you draw you choose to draw these boundaries right but there's not a permanent or true boundary hmm. right so we can choose to draw the boundary around the individual. We can choose to draw the right. boundary around, you know, the community. We can choose to draw it around all of humanity. We can, right. you know, do all of that. But I think the biggest thing is, is that we have to be flexible and understand these are all lenses. And just as if we, if we want to make sense of the stars, we don't say, oh, there is one particular frequency we should be looking at, and that is the true frequency. To truly see the stars, we should only look in the X-ray part of the spectrum. And that's fucking retarded. You look at all of them, and they all reveal different things and then as you look amongst many of them then you start to aggregate and amalgamate a picture that is a composite picture that starts to make more sense um and each of those lenses reveals different things yeah yeah it's like it you know it's like we think we know what's big and what's small right and we're not conscious of the fact that those that that we're choosing an arbitrary point 
to anchor around in an infinite spectrum yep. yeah and then to p- look left and right from there like what's up and down well Which up and the, down doesn't m- make sense the, when you're off earth this is the same conversation you had with the girlfriend who said that you had a circus sized penis right <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to know what is your anchor and then am I yeah, big exactly. or am I small exactly <laughs> what is zero in your number system please <laughs> where does the scale lie okay good exactly are we talking Cirque du Soleil or some <laughs> circus that came through town when you were a kid. Oh, yeah. oh my yeah. God. Um, yeah, well, it's all it's all very strange. So what have you been reading recently? Um, I've been, so, uh, you know, I mean... Uh, By the way, Hunter Motz is yeah. the guest. Oh, yeah, sure, whatever. <laughs> I don't think we did any introduction. Yeah. You're, so your your podcast is... Uh, Mixed Mental Arts. Have you, did you take a break when you were... We, because well, so I don't listen to podcasts. Yeah, I don't listen to yeah, podcasts yeah, either. Um, <laughs> some, we're, by the way, amazing salespeople. We're really good at that self-promotion yeah, thing. Yeah, who no, has time? Uh, no, Brian um, Brian uh, has been doing Schooled, which is his ABC uh, spinoff of the Goldbergs. Oh, yeah, yeah. So that was like a super intense schedule. And then the honest conversation that Brian and I had on Tuesday was that, uh, you know, we've now done, you know, whatever, 300, 400 episodes of the podcast, and we've gotten really sick of smart talk. Like, Mm. essentially, you get Mm -hmm. the academic or the author on, and then you tell me your spiel, and then we try and say, okay, great, like, how does this fit together with this other person? Then we're like, oh, I've never actually heard of that person, so we can't actually have that conversation. Mm. Or it doesn't actually lead to anything. So... What we're now focused on, I think, is, uh, you know, and this is this has sort of been the project of Mixed Mental Arts, is how do you bring all these ideas together into something cohesive? But I think a lot of what we talked about is just that there are people who profit off of division, right? Like, the, the incentives of politicians and pundits is to have a single variable explanation that is the answer or the problem to everything. And they make their money by, you know, fear mongering, literally selling fear and by demonizing. And it doesn't lead to good solutions. Right. So right. even if you think about the conversation around immigration, um, you know, there's lots of different ways you could solve this. You could have a decent minimum wage and then those jobs are for Americans. And so it's a living wage. And so all of that, or you can have intentional immigration, but what's not useful is to say, we're going to shut the wall. We're going to have a wall and we're going to have no immigration. It's also not useful to have sort of the liberal version, which is to say, we're going to open the floodgates and let everybody in and have no conversation about what are our community's values and if you're going to join our community, you have to get on board with whatever those community values are. I mean, that's right. the, the, a lot of what the Dutch have dealt with, with this sort of chedocha, the blind tolerances, is that they were just like, oh, we can let anyone in. Right. And yeah. then now they've realized that actually, oh, guess what? A lot of these people who are coming from traditional Muslim countries don't fit with our values at all. And they don't even respect your values. Yeah, they have no desire to learn our language. They don't respect our values. They have no desire to engage with them. And they're fundamentally undermining what our community is about. And they're abusing their children. That, well, I, yeah, I don't know that much about that. But Well, I mean, female genital mutilation, oh, yeah, 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 you yeah. know, yeah. or they're killing, you know, the daughter dates 
a Dutch guy, yeah. and then they you kill know, him, kill him, or kill her. Or, yeah. more likely, you know, honor well, killing. And so my my mother, my parents have been married for forty two years. My mother just recently got her Dutch citizenship, and it was amazing because she had to go through all the citizenship exams that they now have. So you have to speak, you know, very basic Dutch. And then they had a series of questions, and she was like, the test was laughable for her as an American and a liberal. But, you know, they were clearly designed for Turks, right? And it's clearly designed to be like, yeah, no, if you see two gay people, it's like literally, if you see two gay people walking down the street holding their holding hands, what should you do? And the response is <laughs> like, police. yeah, commit a hate crime, you know, <laughs> smile and wave, you know. So the, the, the point is, is that the, the, the conservative version is dumb and yeah. the liberal version is dumb, like right. those extreme positions. And so... I th- what we're I think focused on and what interests us is like okay great like yes these things will help you get elected right like showing you know uh, people all over the world in distress starving on refugees and saying we have a moral responsibility let's let a million people in whatever yeah that might get you elected but that doesn't necessarily make for sound policy yeah. right and actually really what we should be looking at is how about we don't destabilize their countries so what's this have to do with your podcast so anyway that's what we're trying to figure <laughs> out with the podcast is how do we how do we reveal and show uh-huh. that the sort of divisive echo chambers are not useful and that what we need is to take the best of both worlds. Hmm. Um, and so anyway, yes, that, that, that is what we're trying to figure out. And the idea is if we can do that around immigration, around gun control, around lots and lots of issues. Oh, so you're going to focus on politics. Yeah. Oh, interesting. I think so. Are you going to have guests on or just sort of do little, no, we're going to have, we're going to have guests on. And the oh. idea is to get people from both the extremes, people who balance. So for example, maybe get, get a guy, get the head of the NRA on, right? And try and understand, like, what's going on emotionally and morally for him under the hood, right? Like, why is he taking the positions that he's taken? Oh, he's terrified that liberals will take his guns away, so he staked out this ultra-extreme position. How has he been driven to that place? How did he get there? Then have a guy who's trying to start up, there's a guy that Brian knows who's trying to start up an alternative to the NRA, sort of a common-sense organization for gun owners, right? Mm. So you get him on, right? And you just are basically showing people, we're so often told there's an A or a B, right? And that you, there is a third solution, which is to take the best of A and B and find, you know, some sort of solution that is much, much healthier. So where do you come down on the vaccine debate? Um, I mean, I think people should be vaccinated. I think that, uh, yes, absolutely personal autonomy, but I think that communities have the right to set whatever their standards are. And if one of the initiation... National uh, communities, not... Yeah, national communities. So what about, like, the Amish say, we're not going to vaccinate our kids? What about that level of community? Well, that's the thing, is is that that's the the tension of state versus federal, right, that's always been going on, right? Mm. How much local autonomy do you have? And where do you allow local autonomy? Like, let's say, for example, do you think that local communities should be able to say, we're going to circumcise our girls, yeah, or allow slavery. Or allow slavery, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I, I mean, clearly there are things that we won't allow local communities to do because right. that becomes... A but th- wouldn't the argument be that v- not vaccinating is, is, is more analogous to not circumcising our girls? Because uh, I mean, they're saying the vaccination is the abuse and it's state-mandated abuse of children. Right. You know? 
Well, I I mean, I think I, personally, I have no problem saying that we should all be vaccinated, hmm. right? You know, if you're dealing with a rural community like the Amish and that's what they're going to do, you know, that's one thing. It's a totally different thing when you're living in a major city. See, the, I, uh, the reason I, I brought it up is that I did a little rant on this yeah. on a recent podcast. And to me, this is this is a very good example of what you're talking about, where you have these two positions uh, that are sort of absolutist and, mm-hmm. and don't want to hear the other side. To me, the truth seems to be in the middle somewhere. Okay. Um, for example, I have a very close friend who's very, very smart, and she's up in arms about vaccinations. And what right. she says is um, that the number of vaccinations that kids are given now is like mm-hmm. 10 times more than when I was a kid. Right. All sorts of stuff that nobody's ever heard of is included in the vaccination. Why? That's right. not, those are not diseases that are threatening anybody in the developed world. Right. And so her argument, and she's a litigator, and lawyer, very smart person. Her argument is there's economic interest here, that they've mm-hmm. pumped all this stuff into the vaccinations because pharmaceutical companies are going to make money from it and blah, blah, blah. Right. And a lot of those things that are unnecessary are hurting some kids. Right. Um, that makes sense to me. And yeah. knowing what we know about the way pharmaceutical companies operate, I have no problem believing sure. that, you know, they're what's they don't give a fuck about the kids or anybody right. else because they in this case are these organisms that are non-human. Right. They're corporations, right? Um so they have no moral compass at all. Uh, on the other hand, I feel like Vaccinations are one of those things where it's good for 99% of the people and maybe half of 1% of the people are going to have complications and a fraction of those people will die. Yeah. And nobody wants that to be their kid. Right. So if you leave it to individual choice, you're going to say, I'm not going to take a one in 10,000 chance that my kid's going to die from this. Fuck that. And yet, if everybody says fuck that, then you have, you know, so it's kind of like how, you know, generals have to decide who dies and they make these decisions of like, okay, I can send these 5,000 dudes to die in this operation, but that'll save 100,000 and you make that decision. It sucks because 5,000 dudes are going to die, but it's, you know, a calculus you need to make. Well, and I think, I think that's the thing. What I would say is I'm for intentional vaccination, but that's what, what, what I would like to live in is a society where we talk about the real risks and the real trade-offs. Holland, in other words. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Oh, shit. I should just move to Holland. That was it. That was the the solution. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, because I feel like Holland's a place where people would say, yeah, there's a one in 10,000 chance, but you know, we all have to take it and that's right that's the way it works and that's the risk we take and listen like we obviously don't want to be the person to die and we obviously don't want our children to die but like we live in the real world we live in the real world and that what's you know it's certainly not desirable to have mass outbreaks of whooping cough and rubella yeah right so we're willing to like yes we take that risk for all of our children yeah i had measles as a kid yeah it was creepy as fuck yeah to see all these red dots all over your skin all over and itchy as hell and you know i was i don't know seven or eight or something and just like 
that was weird to yeah. just see that happen to your body. Such well, a weird disease. And listen, I had an adverse reaction to a vaccination. Oh, did you? Yeah, it was fucking gnarly. Is it that was, way you're autistic? That is why I am autistic. Vaccines um, do not cause autism, people. <laughs> that was a weird joke. That was a weird joke that will now be taken out of context. Is, Hunter's but listen, not autistic but either. But listen, we, we have to give something for every group to be angry about in this podcast. <laughs> so like, we've, we've given enough sound bites Who here. have we not offended? <laughs> Okay, dykes, we're coming for you next. Oh wait, we, we, we covered the we dykes. Covered the about finger dykes. in the dyke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, uh. But 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 I mean, you know, uh, like yeah, there you're there are adverse reactions to vaccines, mm. right? Yeah. Like I've had one, mm. and you know, if you go on the CDC website, they're pretty clear about that. And yeah, I'm sure that sometimes people die or have some sort of other medical complication, and perhaps, and in terms of creating better vaccines. Yes. In terms of being intentional about vaccines and not just, you know, the spray and pray method where we're going to give you fucking a thousand vaccines that you're not likely to contract the disease in the United States. We don't want to do that. Right. But at the same time, I think that's the biggest thing is just that spray and pray, spray and pray. Oh, that's that's my birth control method. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> but what are you praying for? Are you praying for conception? <laughs> no, no. Um, no, but there's actually so uh, there's an article that I read uh, about curiosity and she quoted um, Thomas Sowell. And Thomas Sowell talks about constrained versus unconstrained thinking. Mm. So constrained thinking is, you know, you understand that any any improvement you make is going to come with trade-offs, mm. right? So you vaccinate people, but there's a trade-off. Some people will get have adverse reactions. Some people will die, right? The example that I love of that is, uh, you know, the major form of pollution in the, in the early 1900s was horseshit. Mm-hmm. And then along came this amazing clean device that, you know, produced no horseshit, the car. But you invent the car and now you have the internal combustion engine and at scale, again, that becomes a problem. That's that's the evolutionary condition, right? You always, any problem you solve will at scale become a new kind of problem. Um, and you also, the ultimate constraints is human nature, right? Our brains are wired. We have negativity bias. We can only track 150 relationships. You know, we have all these sexual impulses, all of these, there are all these constraints and you can't, you're not going to change that wetware. You're not going to change that hardware fundamentally. The, I think the, the thing that is really, uh, it's just a pain in the ass in terms of trying to get to any sort of satisfying solutions is unconstrained pe- thinking. It's people who have these utopian fucking visions who also think that we can change human nature or anything like that because that leads to fucking disaster, right? Like when we start to think that, oh, we're going to have this, you know, uh, this world where suddenly, you know, we don't, nobody vaccinates and somehow that nobody is actually going to get sick or you start to think that, oh, the vaccines are causing the autism. Like it's that free association where you just start jamming things together and you start making up narratives that make sense that aren't accountable to reality. Mm. That doesn't, 
help move the conversation forward. Or you're going to start creating a narrative where you paint all immigrants as fucking rapists and bad hombres. That's not helpful. It's also not helpful to be like, oh, everybody who comes over here is a you know, a fluffy refugee who is super nice and just wants a chance at the American dream, that's also not helpful. The reality is that the people coming over the border are fucking people. Some of them are going to be a great asset and a great addition to your community. Some of them, you don't want your fucking community. And a mature, healthy response is to be able to distinguish shit from Shinola, right? And, you know, whether that's uh, some vaccines cause, you know, uh, mortality. Some of them prevent disease. Sometimes you have to make trade-offs or whether it's like there are some bad hombres. There are also some good hombres. Like, you know, there's a, everything is a mix and it takes real discernment to be able to separate things out. It takes wisdom to know the difference. Yeah. And when you're overloaded with information, I think you can lose the capacity to do that. Right. I, I've been thinking recently how... Uh, you know, we live in this age of information saturation, which is as bad as not having enough information because in both cases you resort to magical thinking. That's right. And there's like a kind of intellectual obesity happening now with, there's just so much information that people can't distinguish what's true and not true. And so you end up with these conspiracy kind of uh, interpretations, which, you know, religion can be seen as a conspiracy theory. Um, but but it's, it's really damaging because some conspiracies are real. Yeah. You know, like I, I just did this rant in, on the last Rome I did where, you know, it's like people say, well, the truth always comes out. Mm-hmm. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. <laughs> you just hear about the cases where it did. Yeah. And so then you generalize and you say the truth. What about the conspiracies you haven't heard about that were successful? Or, you know, the truth comes out long after it's actually relevant. Right. Like, you know, Hitler burns down the Reichstag. Right. right? Yeah. Great. We now know that he did it. Gulf of Tonkin. Right. Great. We now know that he did it. But at this point, those wars are over. Yeah. That's been, you know, those people are dead. Like, it doesn't do you much good. Like, if we found out how the USS Maine sank at this point. Right. It'd be cool. You know, that the truth came out, but it wouldn't Spanish American war still happened. Yeah, Those yeah. people died. Like, it doesn't fucking do us any good. Yeah, yeah. You know, even Kennedy. Like, if you found out, you know, oh, Kennedy was actually shot by... Ted Cruz's father. Ted Cruz's father. Like, doesn't do us much good. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's, it's all... Uh, it's confusing. Like, personally, uh, as far as conspiracies go, I mean, let's throw our cards <laughs> on the table here. 9-11... I don't buy that bullshit. Yeah. I mean, f- you know, no. Yeah. Box cutters, you know, a bunch of Saudi dudes. Like, no, no, no. That's all weight. You know, all the fucking, the National Guard stands down on the Northeast, you know, under, or like, there's a lot of weird, weird shit there. And that building that drops straight in its tracks, right in its foundations, two blocks away. And, you know, that contained all this CIA information. Like, are you kidding me? No, I don't yeah, but, buy any of that shit. But Chris, is it also fair to say that you have a generalized distrust of the American government? Of course. Yeah. I have a generalized distrust of any government. Exactly. Or any corporation or exactly. any institution. Because as I said, they're organisms that are amoral. They they don't, they want to survive and thrive on their terms. But see, I think that's the that's one of the basic constraints and difficulties of the human condition is that we resonate with narratives that feel emotionally true. 
So I, I actually have no basis to be but, able... But, but I distrust the U.S. government because of historical oh, yeah. precedent. I'm, I'm not saying that your, your distrust of the American government is unjustified. Like you have that, that abusive relationship. There's plenty of reasons right. why you distrust them. But what I'm saying is, is that like, I, I don't know, because obviously, you know, we do podcasts and so people reach out to us on the internet and want us to look at or investigate certain things. And one of the bizarre things things about being a podcaster is is that you are suddenly expected to weigh in on fucking everything right right and so you know i've had plenty of people come to me like 9 11 this that that it's like the level of knowledge that it would take to actually figure that out like I don't know enough about engineering. I don't know about enough about structural engineering. I would have to go in and verify a whole bunch of things. Like, right. That's a huge fucking project. It's a lot of work. Yeah. It's, it would be a lot of work right. to like actually try and dig in there. And then by the way, also the historical record probably isn't complete enough or reliable enough. And maybe in a hundred years, right? Same thing. The information will actually come out, right? Maybe, or maybe... In a hundred years, the narrative that is convenient to the powers that be will come out. Of course. Right? Like, it's convenient for us to know about the Reichstag fire now. That's right. Exactly. You know? But there's other stuff that it's not convenient for us to know about that we don't know about. No. Or or stuff that, even if it's known, doesn't make it into the mainstream conversation. Like, right. the the what Henry Ford did. Right. And his relationship with the Nazis right. and the fact that, you know, Hitler thought that Henry Ford was great and Henry Ford thought that Hitler was great. Well, and Bush senior. Yeah. Right. You know, Bush, Bush, George Bush's grandfather, I think it was, who yeah. was the ambassador to the UK, who uh, tried to keep the US out of the war. And also, I think he was at was he at IBM or General Electric or one of those companies that were um, actually helping the Nazis run the death camps with early computing systems. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff. But, and, I mean, my thing of 9-11, like, I don't know what happened. Yeah. But I know that the official story stinks, you know? And I, that's as far as I go, because I don't have the time either to d right. dig into it or the expertise. Um, but you can... I think despite confirmation bias and, and all the rest of it and, you know, emotional uh, appetite to be confirmed, I feel like if understanding narrative is really important to see when a story sticks together and when it doesn't. I think that's the most important thing is, is mm -hmm. that because we live in the age of information glut, right? We all have to have much better metacognitive tools, right? right? right. So metacognitive just means thinking about thinking. Right. So we all have to be able to, because I, I think the, the really dangerous thing, like in terms of those filters and those lenses, the really dangerous thing is that idea of truth. Like, you know, Thaddeus Russell said something which I have really resonated with, which is that truth has always been the favorite tool of the autocrat. Mm. Like, that's what every dictator dreams of, is to be able to put forward a story and pretend that it is the only story or the correct story. It's the orthodox story, mm. right? And we no longer, there's no, orthodoxy exists within subcultures, but in humanity as a whole, it doesn't exist. Mm. Like, there isn't a single narrative. There's no truth. There is yeah. no truth. Yeah. And so we all have to get much, much better at constantly testing and busting and breaking down those narratives and then thinking functionally about those narratives, right? right? Because it's really like even something like 9-11, right? If you take the George W. Bush narrative of 9-11, right? 
that's a causus belli. It's a justification for war, right? And <laughs> not against the country he declared war on. No, but exactly. Still, yeah. But but also even there he relies on a, the fact that most Americans can't distinguish between Arabs. Like they're just a vast <laughs> yeah. over there, yeah. and therefore a war on any Arab is a war on the Arabs who did these things to us, right? right? Added into which, like, okay, if you look at the members of Al-Qaeda, yes, many of them are Arabs and many of them are Muslims, but look at Afghanistan. Like, there aren't a lot of Arabs in Afghanistan. (laughs) It's mostly, like, Pashto and, you know, on and on and on and on. Tajik, whatever the fuck else, right? So, I I think the the, the real thing is, is that we... You, there's not going to be an Académie Française. Like mm. we're not we're not going to have an official body that right. is going to say this is truth, this is the story, this is how you should use the language, and all of that sort of stuff. We all just have to be in the business of constantly testing narratives to create a, a healthier sort of story space. Yeah, yeah. Well, good luck with that. I mean, I think <laughs> you're certainly right that that's what we need to be doing. But I think it's so fucking hard with the glut of information coming at us you know it's just the volume of shit that's coming and it's it's and i think this is a bit of a this is again where it comes back to the dutch like it has to be a community effort like it's it's you're not going to get a little dutch boy who's going to stick his finger in the dike and be able to hold that back like i I feel like we need to disengage you know i feel like you know, we were talking earlier about sort of the trajectory of humanity and, and you know, whether we're embedded within other organisms and all that. I, I feel like we're, I, I feel like one path that we may be on uh, and we, you know, it's all sort of retroactive mm-hmm. knowledge, right? But that we may be a larval stage of life that mm-hmm. that is moving toward a technological uh, life form. And so we're here to like deliver this technological baby and then we'll be, you know, like a booster rocket that just, yeah, you know, um, I, I feel like that's the way this is going because, you know, the more technology there is, the more information is generated, the more impossible it is for our biological minds to distinguish mm-hmm. real news from fake news. And then you get, I mean, Donald Trump arising as a figure of, he constantly holds attention, you know, like you get Kristen uh, Harris or Tristan Harris, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah. talking about how Snapchat and Instagram and Twitter and all that, they're designed to hold your attention. Mm-hmm. They're designed to waste your day. Yeah. And then you get Donald Trump arising as if he were designed by these same engineers, mm-hmm. right? He's constantly, look at me, listen to me. Look, yeah, he's this. Even so much that he'll score an old goal just so that you start watching it. Yeah. Like the, the oh, Mueller, exactly. The Mueller report comes out and like exonerates him and then he immediately fucks it up because he needs that attention. Yeah. Yeah. So, which really shows you. That it's not about being right or wrong. It's about, it's it's an information parasite. Yeah. Which is the same thing that's happening with the technology. So I, I'm feeling like the only way to really get any control over my life is to pull out. Like, I, I feel like I need to, yeah, I've been talking about um, this idea that that's sort of ripening in me and and some people that I'm close to of like let's go buy some land in the middle of nowhere 
and take care of each other. Mm -hmm. You know, have a garden, have some animals, some chickens and goats and whatever. And um, like not a commune, not a full on hippie commune, but like a place where we can get old together or take care of each other's kids if they're kids and take care of the animals and come and go as we want and own our own property, but all be in sort of an mm -hmm. intentional town in a way, right. you know? Um, and cause I, I like, I haven't read a novel in mm -hmm. years. I can't remember that. And it just seems like I used to have so much more time. Yeah. And here I am, I got no kids. Mm -hmm. I got no job per se. Mm -hmm. You know, this is my job essentially. Where's all my time going? Fucking social media, watching YouTube videos of the latest Donald Trump idiocy, yeah. and the day's over. Yeah, it it's just it's amazing. Yeah, and I can feel it's like I've got leeches mm -hmm. that have attached to my body, and they're sucking the time and attention out of my yep. bloodstream, which is your most valuable resource. Which is yeah, exactly. It's irreplaceable. Yeah, yeah. So and it's, it's the, a strange and it's thing. Also, the only great equality. Like my dad always talks about that. Like you know, we have different amounts of money. We have different amounts right. of everything else. Rupert but, Murdoch. But we have the same yeah. amount of time and attention. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, medical care, whatever. Yeah. But I mean, I think these, you know, these Silicon Valley dudes who are like, oh, we're inventing, you know, we're going to live to 200. <laughs> You're fucking kidding yourself, yeah. man. You know, like, it's I'm also, sorry. It's also like, but that's what I love just in terms of like human narratives, yeah. right? Like, uh, those are the same guys that would have been questing after the Holy Grail, right. you know, in the mid Middle Ponce Ages. De Leon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the, the point is, is that like, obviously, if, you know, if you had all that Silicon Valley crowd and they like went on all these podcasts and they were like, we're actually going to find the Holy Grail. Yeah. Like we've actually got some, we figured out, you know, El Dorado. Like El Dorado. Yeah, got like, a map. I got oh, a map. Oh, don't worry. We know, you know, where the lost kingdom, like yeah. everybody would be like, you're fucking nuts. Yeah. We're right? geniuses. Yeah. But instead yeah. it's like, it's the scientific rationalization of yeah. it. That for most people sounds plausible enough that, you know, it can keep people engaged. But also the other thing that I love is, is like, you know, you look at, look at Ray Kurzweil or whatever. Yeah. He's a, he's every fucking meal is regimented. He takes two hundred pills a day. the The other question is quality of life. Like right. How much quality of life does Ray Kurzweil have doing all of that? And then also, like the, every time I hear him talk, I'm just like, can we actually talk about your dad? Like clearly, this was the traumatic event that set you off, hmm. and you've just never healed from. Who was that his moment. dad? So his dad died at a very young age from a heart attack or something uh -huh. like that. And like, even like one of his sort of grand fantasies is that he's going to be able to, he's kept all of his dad's papers, all these records, uh, and that from all that information, he's going to be able to regenerate his father. Uh, and it's like, isn't that what we should be talking about? Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. You know that phrase behind every great fortune, there's a great crime. Yeah. You know, I often think that uh, applies to great genius or accomplishment mm -hmm. as well. I mean, I, this is a, a drum I bang constantly yeah. on this podcast and elsewhere. But, you know, I mean, when when do you any great guitarist, you ask them why they picked up a guitar? It was mm -hmm. to impress girls. Of course. So what if Keith Richards had been getting blowjobs when he was 14? 
Oh, he... We'd never have heard of him. Yeah, he'd probably be working in a record shop. <laughs> exactly. And since there are no record shops, he'd be homeless <laughs> he'd be and unemployed. Homeless, which might, might undermine my point. And he would still uh, look the same, by the way. <laughs> it's exactly. just that the look would have been achieved in a different way. But, I mean, seriously, if, you know, like, the guy driving the Lamborghini there's a wound oh yeah you know otherwise you'd buy a what, fucking toyota land cruiser or whatever yep. and you're happy well so pixar talks about core memories pixar the the animation studio oh yeah their bit their big thing is and i should just to credit because we're big into that brian Kreuzberger, who's another podcaster he told me about this but pixar is big into core memories which are like what are those like central memories in your life that then dictated all those other choices, mm. right? And we usually, if you talk to people, they usually have a few core memories that profoundly shape their their worldview and that rosebud, ne- rosebud, exactly. Yeah. And so the I think that's true for all of us. Mm. But certainly, when you go to these, you know, because really, it's like what it takes to become a genius or what it takes to achieve at that sort of level is a level of obsession. Right. And then on that, the other side of that level of obsession, there's usually a level of trauma right, or emotional need of something that you're trying to fix. It drives you. Yeah. 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 Now, on the other hand, do you think that there are exceptions to this? Do you think that there are people who are just genetically endowed with so much talent or so much computing processing power that it comes easy for them no do you think right okay so i mean i you look at the presidency Mm -hmm. people who rise to that there's some great need for recognition and power and whatever (laughs) right i looked at obama and i thought this guy's kind of healthy right he's cool he's funny i'd like to hang with this dude well it's also timing Right. So sometimes people are successful because it's not that they have necessarily been obsessive or whatever, but it's timing. Right. Obama, you know, had all the things that were needed for a black president at that time, at a time when people really wanted a black president. But he wasn't just a black dude standing there. He was a guy who had gone to Harvard. No, but that's who what I'm was, saying. You know, like, like, put, it, put the pieces in order. Yeah. So, you know, a chance favors the prepared mind. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, there's there were lots of black dudes in 2008, right? But how many black dudes were there who had, you know, uh, gone to Harvard, gone to Harvard Law School, or Columbia, gone to Harvard Law School, also had had that star turn at the DNC 2000, done that amazing speech, were great orators, had the right connections in Chicago, so they had the right sort of political organization. Like, not anybody could have done that. I mean, lots of other black dudes have been tried to be president. Herman Cain, right? You good, know? good luck, Herman. <laughs> yeah, Herman yeah. didn't work Corey out. Booker thought Corey he was, Booker thought yeah. he was the hot shit. Seems that he's not working out, right? Yeah. So there's also, I mean, timing is part of it. Like, you know, I think that's really important. There were lots of people who tried to be white rappers, right? you know, Eminem had done all the practice, all the work, and it was the right timing as well, right? The world was ready for that. You have to have had enough people know about rap to then be excited about what Eminem was doing, Mm. right? So I think it's some of it's timing, which is, I think, honestly, most of timing is luck. Like, I think there are a lot of people who are toiling in obscurity, and then some people get the timing right, and so they pop, right? Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook, Lots of people had social media networks, yeah. right? Well, that that's sort of the corollary to what I was ranting about earlier with the truth always comes out. These, yeah. self, 
these self-referential nonsense narratives mm-hmm. like if you just keep trying you'll make it yeah we never hear about the people who didn't make it no of course we hear the stories of the guy who had setbacks and persevered of and course. made it which and is that also, seems to tell this story that you'll always make it if you keep trying, but it doesn't. Well, it's again, it's it's also like this is something that Brian and I talked about yesterday is power vacuums. Like people don't understand that negative space, mm. right? So everybody is like, oh my God, we're going to get rid of fucking Saddam Hussein. He's a fucking bad <laughs> right, dude. Right. We're going to get rid of Gaddafi. Yeah. He's a bad dude. And there's never the ability to imagine the negative space of yeah. like having removed that, you've now created a power vacuum something will come in, right? right? And in the same way, we obviously, we anchor on the success stories, but we don't see the thousands and thousands of failures who weren't necessarily failures because they were less talented or less brilliant. It's Mm -hmm. just luck, timing, position. And then also the other thing too is, is that in the same way that, you know, countries create narratives around themselves to justify their own powers, all successful people do. Right. They worked hard. Well, that's their narrative. I worked hard for this. It's always, I worked hard. You know, uh, I was lucky, right? Like there's also the like, thank Jesus, like right. thank Muhammad, <laughs> thank whoever, you yeah, know. For every goal, for, Cristiano Ronaldo scores. scores. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. And then, you know, like these are, these are all appealing narratives, right? Because it's like, Again, like think in a hunter-gatherer setting, right? If we're in a tribe of 150 and some dude has a shitload of mangoes, right? We're like, give us some of those fucking mangoes. You need a narrative in a large-scale society that makes people okay with the fact that you have shit ton of mangoes and I have no fucking mangoes. Right. So it better be like, oh, one, like I worked really hard, so I deserve all these mangoes. Two... Uh, by the way, these mangoes weren't given to me by me. They were given to me by God. So, so you who, kind of, if who, you want, yeah. if you have an complain issue, go complain to God, right? <laughs> yeah. You know, oh, I had a really amazing family. It's like, oh, so it was a community effort. So you're not taking full credit for this thing. But these are all rhetorical and narrative strategies to basically avoid me saying, give me some of your fucking mangoes. Yeah. Well, society won't function if we all have mangoes. So That's right. it, it works better this way. This Just ask much, Darwin. It's exactly. Yeah. You know, survival of the fittest. Sorry, dude. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think about universal basic income? Can everyone have a mango and things will still work? <laughs> universal well, basic mango. Um, I mean, wasn't universal basic income sort of the order of the day of hunter? That's what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, I mean, I I think the, uh, it's also that great line. What, why, what, you know, about Mongongo nuts? Why should I work when there's so many Mongongo (laughs) Mongongo nuts nuts. in the world? Yeah. It would, it would not be, I mean, so the way, the way that I think about this is Daniel Pink uh, in Drive talks about their sort of three different levels of human motivation, Mm. right? So there's motivation 1.0, which is fear-based, right? That's a lot of what the sort of the archetypal middle ages were about, right? You do this, you know, or we cut off your head, we cut off your hands, whatever it may be, right? Which is, yeah, no, go ahead and I'll I'll comment after you. (laughs) Motivation two is sort of capitalism, right? Mm. Um, You know, we're doing this. If you do this, then we will give you cash. We will give you whatever. You work an eight-hour day. We give you so much money, whatever. And then motivation 3.0 is intrinsic motivation, right? So it's a Mm. desire for autonomy, mastery, and purpose. Mm. And what it turns out is that if you meet people's basic financial needs, like if you reach a certain level, 
then they you're not going to make them any happier by giving them any money and then it all becomes about intrinsic motivation and people who are intrinsically motivated actually work much harder than people who are extrinsically motivated right so because you're never done yeah yeah and because you're not I, listen my my needs are met like i'm not doing this for cash mm. i'm doing this so that i can achieve some goal that i actually care about so and you're choosing an activity that's immediately um, uh, rewarding, right? Because it's pleasurable, right? Yeah, I the thing point I was going to make was that the uh, motivation number two, capitalism, seems to me to incorporate an awful lot of motivation number one. Because you, I mean, you pointed to one side of it. If you do this stuff, you'll get a bunch of money that you can use to be, you know, to whatever. Um, but the other side is if you don't do this stuff, you're, you're fucked. And you're homeless. Right. Because there's no safety net for you. That's right. Right. Um, yeah, there's this great book called The Art of Not Being Governed. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scott, James C. Scott. And he talks about uh, societies that have tried to not be involved mm-hmm. in the civilized world. And how hard it is because, you know, the narrative that we're told of civilization is that everybody wants to join. But as Mm -hmm. you said, with the Mongongo nuts guy, like, no, most people don't want to join or or Sebastian Junger's tribe talking about, you know, people who've experienced the Indians always want to go back and live with the Indians. Uh, You know, he wrote about how civilizations will reach out and like <laughs> net people and drag yeah. them in as slaves as soldiers they'll undermine their ability to to survive on their own mm-hmm. all these laws were passed in england in the 15 1600s making it illegal to live from hunting or even have your own garden you weren't allowed ones. yeah exactly you needed to come in and join this fucking economy. And then you have people like Steven Pinker now talking about the great success of poverty being eradicated around the world. When really what that means is that people who used to have chickens in a garden are now dragged in and forced to work in the goddamn t-shirt factory Mm -hmm. for pennies and live in, you know, filth. Um, And they're calling that progress on, on their charts as of course they will. What the fuck am I ranting about, Hunter? <laughs> God damn it. Well, I, I think... I need lunch. Yeah, I think lunch would be a good idea. But the I think the, you know, the mass-scale civilization rests on bodies and numbers, yeah. right? And obviously, that way of living has to justify itself. So, it creates narratives that justify it. So, listen... Yeah. It's you're speaking truth to that's power. why I'm saying our only redress, yeah, our only revolutionary move is disengagement, yeah, when possible, which is go back to the garden, you know, your own garden if yeah. possible, take care of your friends, and don't have kids, starve the beast. Okay, well, <laughs> I say to a guy who just got married and probably, well, no, I'm not, no, we're not gonna have kids, oh, you're not having kids, you're okay. not having kids. Um, if we do have kids, we'll adopt, um. Just because, you know, we both spend enough time in the developing world. There's not a shortage of kids. There's a shortage of parents. Um, so, uh, no, I, I, I think that, so the, the question is, yeah, what do you do, right? Do you try and reform from within? Do you? Never works. Never works. Everybody's like, no, I'm going to become president and change the world. No, you won't. But, no, you won't. But the other thing Obama is... Obama didn't change the fucking world. Hope but, and change. Pfft, bullshit. <laughs> okay. But, That's but, why we got Trump. But... 
<laughs> Seriously. You, uh, to me, the, the hope and change vote. Yeah. Tried Obama. Let's try the black guy. Yeah. That didn't work. Okay, let's try this lunatic. Yeah. And uh, next time, I hope it's the, the gay 39-year-old. But Pete... Pete. I went to school with Pete. Really? I like Pete. You know Pete oh, I know at Pete. Harvard. Yeah. You know at Harvard. Oh, really? He was, he was 04. He was in Dunstan. So he's, that's exactly who I was thinking of yeah. when I said, is there occasionally someone who just is born with capacities that allow them to reach these heights yeah. without being driven by fear or some terrible wound? Pete seems remarkably sane. He he's does. He's always seemed he remarkably sane. He seems so cool, sane. so smart. Yeah. And yet, you, you look at his trajectory, it's obviously he was checking boxes oh, totally. on his way to yeah, he probably went, he went the presidency. To, I think, I mean, listen, in terms of, like, what's interesting is Pete's gay, yeah. right? But Pete came out super late. Yeah, he came out when he was already mayor yeah. and running for re-election. Right. Yeah. So, I listen, I don't. I don't claim to, I you know, I knew Pete, but I don't... Pete Buttigieg. Buttigieg, yeah. yeah. I don't claim to have particular insight into his psychology or what was driving him there. I think it's clear that he wanted to be president, right? Like, the the military thing, there right. was a certain... Road scholar, magna cum laude. I mean, that dude yeah. was focused. Yeah. The question is why. Yeah. I don't know. But the point is, is that I think that's the other thing, too, is, is that lots of people are focused and have that need question is then what does that manifest as does that manifest as good sane sound policy or does that manifest as narcissism or does that manifest as like i think that's what's interesting too is you've got you got trump who's obviously four and just constantly needs to be he, but trump feels like bart simpson to me like he just needs attention doesn't really care if it's good attention doesn't care if it's yeah. bad attention he just needs attention yeah. and then i think the other sort of flip side is the the politicians or leaders who are so fucking concerned about their legacy that they're not willing to risk offending anyone or you know really sticking their necks out right like obama seems like a very nice guy i'm sure that having dinner with michelle or and barack would be lovely it would be a lovely evening the Portuguese water dogs are very cute. Their kids are very cute. <laughs> yeah. Like they're yeah. very smart. They're very Good taste urbane, in music. All that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. I also think that, you know, by the way, having dinner with Laura Bush and George W. Bush, I'm sure he's a fun guy, right? Both of them on policy, neither of them really represent my interests or fit my perspective on how the world works. I can't really tell what Obama did. Yeah. And, you know, Bush, I know what he did. I didn't like it. His yeah. foreign policy was terrible. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the that that's sort of always... Been A lot like, of what Bush did was give legitimacy to what Bush had done. Yeah. You know, totally. and allow it to settle into precedent. That's right. Yeah. I mean, his, his prescription drug plan was a fucking, you know, trillion dollar handout to Big Pharma. That was horrible. Right. War on terror was a fucking travesty. Yeah. It has made the world less secure and damaged our relationships and reputation with the majority of moderate Muslims who we should be building and cultivating as allies specifically to deny support to extremists. Yeah. Um, Obama, like, what the fuck did he do? Yeah. Like, that's, that's, that's really the question. What, what he did for me was he undermined my capacity to believe in anything changing. <laughs> I mean, I bought three Obama t-shirts yeah. and I haven't worn, I don't even know where they are. 
I, it's like, yeah, I, I, I was so happy when yeah. he was elected. I, I was irrationally happy. Yeah. And like, I thought finally, yeah, finally a guy I admire, a guy I could see hanging out with. Right. Somehow he got in there first time since Carter. Right. And he's going to bring some sanity to this. And no, it was no. No one stands up to the machine. Yeah. So, I mean, Pete, I wish him all the luck in the world, but he, I don't think he's going to change it either. I don't think anything's going to change it. I think what's going to change it is when it collapses. And that's when you have that negative space you're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, when something new comes in. And it does feel to me, and again, I'm I'm aware of my own, you know, capacity for delusion here, but it does feel that every fundamental institution of western civilization has been discredited in the last 10 or 15 years and there's an acceleration that i've only seen when something's about to go down the toilet but okay so here's my next question then do you not fear collapse scenarios do i not fear living through a collapse you mean oh sure that's why I don't think it's it's me yearning to believe something that's not true. I'd prefer to believe the opposite. Right. Um, but I feel like an objective, as objective as I can be, my objective sense is that Western civilization is going down the drain. That we are accelerating and every, every there's nothing to believe in. There's nothing that makes, there's nothing that's legitimate. Not, not politics, not Wall Street, not religion, n- you know, not Western medicine, pharmaceutical, you know, like pick it. None of it makes sense anymore. Right. And I, I feel like there's this converging um, rot that is reminiscent of the fall of every civilization that's ever existed. And there's no reason that ours would, you know, break the trend. No. So I feel like we're living in the end times. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, firstly, Chris, what I'm really excited about is, is that now you're starting to get something that has real commercial potential. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what civilized to death is partly about. I was just looking at the bookshelf because there's this book. If you haven't read it, I'd really recommend it. It's uh, a brief history of what's it called? Uh, I talk about it all. A brief history of progress. Mm-hmm. Have you read that? It's, no. It's it's he goes through, you know, Mesopotamia, the Mayans, Easter Island, all these different civilizations, and shows that they have a life cycle, and shows, you know, how the, they rise and the yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's two hundred pages. It's great. It's Ronald Wright, a Canadian so, historian. So, have you ever read Joseph Tainter's? Uh... Oh, he invented the taint. He is, in <laughs> fact, the father of the taint. <laughs> the father of the taint. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> sorry, sorry no it's okay um no so joseph tainter i the i think the book is it's not is it called collapse i can't remember what it's called i've got the collapse the jared Society's diamond's collapse, collapse here somewhere well anyway tainter wrote the sort of more academic book on collapse and his basic thesis is that uh essentially societies reach a position of such unwieldy complexity mm. that the functional thing becomes to collapse. Right. 
So you're you're literally. I mean, I that's, think we're there. That's, I mean, the that's information overload. Yeah, right? exactly. It's that's like what you're saying. When and you're intentionally collapsing down to a community where you can track everything. That's it. A and controlled all, collapse. Exactly. I guess. Yeah, I mean, to me, it, it's it's like this ship's going down. Let's let's start thinking about lifeboats. Yeah. Who who's going to get in? Where are we going, you know, and we got to get away from this thing because it's going to take a lot yeah. down with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I know I sound like a lunatic, but no, I, I don't think I you think sound like a lunatic. Objectively, and it's not even if it doesn't happen. Yeah, it's quality of life. Yeah. You know, like I'd prefer to spend the last 20 or 30 years of my life having relaxed conversations with my friends uh, and eating food that came from the garden and mm-hmm. hanging out with animals and noticing the weather the way I did when I was younger. Now, maybe it's a nostalgia for youth or something. Um, I think it's also part part of it is age. Um, mm-hmm. Like I read an article in the New York Times about uh, this this guy wrote this article about the perfect restaurant for people aged over 50. Oh, I saw the headline. I didn't yeah. read it. Well, yeah. he basically, he was like, I got invited to this restaurant that was the coolest restaurant in New York, the opening and all that sort of stuff. Everybody was envious of me, blah, 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 blah. He shows up. It's like communal tables. He was like, there was like a riot of dishes. I don't know what the fuck I ate. It was too fucking loud. Everything to it. Uh, and like, I think that, you know, obviously when people are in their 20s and 30s, they love fucking chaos. Hmm. Like chaos is exciting and fun because chaos is full of possibilities. It's generative and all that sort of stuff. And you, the older you get, the less you want that chaos and complexity. I'm sure there's an element of that, but I find that a lot of people that I meet in their 20s and 30s are yearning for the same thing. They're I think, yearning for a way out of this. Listen, Facebook sucks right like also one of my classmates facebook sucks right the like it is it is attentional crack it is not meaningful connection it does not foster connections and it has not brought us closer like again the the justifying narrative of facebook is we're connecting the world we're bringing people closer no you don't right like the algorithms are set up this is tristan harris's work like which i don't know that much about but only from mandy my wife because she's a data scientist and Mm. all that so but um and she's a big fan of his so Mm. but the the obviously the justifying narrative if i'm facebook and i'm trying to tell the world who we are i'm gonna say we're connecting people we're bringing people together blah 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 that's not what the algorithms are set up for. They're set up for echo chambers. They're set up for people feeling self-righteous. They're set up for the the politics of division. They're set up for the for division. Like that's what Facebook does. It divides, right? And then monetizes that attention. That's what it's about. That's obviously not what they're saying to the world. Um, so I I mean one of the the when you were talking about disengagement, I think. There's obviously different levels and different ways of disengagement. One of the best things that I read probably 10 plus years ago was William Duresowitz wrote this. uh, He gave this speech, actually, I think it was at the Naval Academy, the commencement speech called Leadership and Solitude. You can find it online. It's very good. And his whole point is that it's about quality of thought. Mm -hmm. So the amount of time and attention that goes into writing a blog post is maybe two hours. To write a book 
is 10 years of distilled thoughts. And as you were saying before the podcast, all books are made up of previous books. So they've read a huge hundreds and hundreds, thousands of books and distilled it into one new book. And and you're talking about a certain kind of book, which often isn't what's produced as books now. That's right. Right. Often what's produced as a book now is something you can throw together quickly and sell and use that to increase your profile. So you can go on a speaking tour or you can, you know, you know, so yeah, yeah, I agree. And that's what I'm talking about. I miss, I miss just sitting around reading a book and thinking about it for hours. Yeah. And I haven't done that in decades. Yeah, but you, I think the, the, the point is, is that there are intentional ways to do that. And I think that's a big part of what we have to all figure out is, you know, listen, just as there has been crack since the 80s, like actually the drug crack that you most of us choose to exclude <clears throat> that from our lives, mm-hmm. there's now intentional crack. There's a new form of crack and you have to choose. Yeah, but the difference is that it's the ether of the world now. It's, you know, it's as if crack were in the river you're swimming in. You can't choose not to be engaged. Yeah, you can. <sighs> How? Well, okay. So Mandy, my wife, shut down her Facebook account. Yeah. Well, I haven't gone on Facebook in months. I haven't gone on Facebook in months either. Fuck Facebook. But I'm on Twitter. I'm yeah, but on I don't, Instagram. I, don't, I also don't really go on Twitter I get anymore. 55 emails a day, minimum. Yeah, but I don't even really go on Twitter anymore. Emails, yeah, I have lots well, of Well, you're probably not allowed on Twitter after yeah, the way prob- you behaved. <laughs> You were kicked off Twitter, weren't you? <laughs> I was rumspringed out of Twitter. <laughs> rumspringed. So you can come back in a year? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, no, funny. I mean, I, you know, it, the, the whole thing is... Hey, I live up on a fucking mountain yeah, by exactly. myself. I'm like, goddamn, you know... But here's the other thing, too, is so... You Unabomber know, up here. The In terms of, like, owning your own thing and whatever and whatever, whatever, right? Like, I always... Like, you know, you look, if you like the thing that I find amusing is to go on Zillow here uh-huh. in Los Angeles, yeah. right? And look at all the places that I'm like, how the fuck would I ever afford my own, like a house that I would actually want to live in? How the fuck would I ever afford that in Los Angeles? Not. Why do you have to be in Los Angeles? Well, but that's the point. But then I think about, like, obviously, I, my my mom's family is from Kansas City. I look at houses there. I mean, I can get you a house buy there Kansas for City. a month's rent, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, but at the same time, and listen, Kansas City is a great city. There's plenty to do. Nah, it sucks. I'm everything's, kidding. I'm kidding. Everything's up to date in Kansas City. I've never been Oklahoma. to Kansas City. But it's actually pretty great. I like Kansas City a lot. But... The, th- the thing is, is that, you know, you, you follow that all the way, right? Yeah. And you get more and more and more remote. And, you know, I know that if you want to see people, you just go on YouTube, right? And look at the people there. <laughs> <laughs> they have people in the box. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I, I, the, the, the thing that I also find funny about this coming from you, Chris, is, is that, like, you know, we were talking before about, you know, your work and the balance between sort of work and sort of play and all of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you like talking to random ass people. Yeah. See, what I like about this lifeboat um, uh, situation, if it comes to pass, is that you've got a community of people there. So you've got your trailer or your house or your cave or whatever the fuck you're living in. And when you want to take off, your friends are there to take care of your dog or your whatever. 
And if you you tell a friend, hey, you can go stay at my place while I'm gone. So I don't envision it as like me staying there forever. I envision it as a home base that's affordable because it's out in the middle of nowhere. Mm -hmm. It's a place where I go home to and I've got people there I love and know and there's history and there's community. And um, I mean, I never live anywhere steadily. I'm always wherever I am is a home base and I'm gone half the year. So I would love if it's in North America and it largely depends on what happens politically. Mm -hmm. If Trump is an aberration, then fine. If Trump is the beginning of this, you know, the new normal, then I'm out. But, um, you know, I would be in the van half the year for sure. Scarlett Johansson. So, okay. So you're in the van for half the year, right? Okay. So how are you, so if we're talking about this situation, okay, so where where is this community if it's in North America? Oh, well, I can't tell you. Okay, but could you give me a region <laughs> of the country that it might be in? <laughs> the, uh, yeah, Southwest, probably. Southwest. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so if it's Southwest, that's pretty dry. Well, it depends. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're, they're forests. Yeah. No, this is a place with water. This is a place with water. I've got a place I'll... I'll uh, but oh, you've I, already got I, the place I, I picked out, but you can't it. talk about it because that would be the worst thing, I know, right? I talk you about blow up it. at its own spot and then everybody <laughs> buys in there. And I can't afford, afford my it anymore. place. Come on now. That's no, no good. Yeah. Um, so then are you there and are you still podcasting? Are you writing? Yeah, yeah. Maybe like workshops. People right. can come, you know, and... Uh, and hang out and learn and teach and you know like a place a place to build community and to spread good ideas and i you know so you're still engaged also, with I the mean, world oh yeah of course yeah. of course but but as we we're saying with intention with right with like i choose how much to be engaged with the world totally. in la it's hard to choose like the world there's engages so much with yeah, you, yeah, you yeah, yeah um i don't know it's all just a it's just a fucking the dream yeah but people need dreams they need, hope. need hope and change. even exactly <laughs> you, you got to dust off those t-shirts <laughs> exactly all right listen we've been talking for two hours and 20 minutes it's, and listen i mean this is fucking is rogan listening? this is rogan rogan ask is anyone listening yeah rogan ask thank you hunter Motz, host of the mixed mental arts podcast Author of the what the fuck is your book? Straight called? A Conspiracy. Straight A Conspiracy. Harvard graduate, but not insufferable. One, <laughs> one of the few Harvard graduates who's not a giant pain in the ass. Yeah, me uh, and Mayor Pete. It's pretty much Pete, it. Pete's pretty cool. Seems to be pretty cool. So, did you actually know him personally? Yeah, he stole my roommate. He stole your roommate. He stole my college roommate. Wow! Wow! So, Who was your roommate? Previn. Previn? Yeah. <laughs> Andre Previn? No, Previn, Previn Warren. He's... Previn Warren, man. That's the name of someone who would go to Harvard. Yeah. No, he's Indian. He's oh, oh it's an Indian yeah, Previn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah. Oh. But he, Pete, Pete, he left, he left our rooming group and went to go live with Mayor Pete. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. Huh. Okay. Well, I won't ask any inappropriate questions about no, that. No, it's okay. It's okay. There's a whole story there, but uh, Yeah, yeah, of course. Do you okay. want to tell you we were talking about the traumas that drive us. That's my trauma. There was that what it is. <laughs> You've been looking for a replacement roommate ever yeah, since. Exactly. And then I got married. Does Mandy so know? There you I was going to say, does so she know fixed. she's replacing an Indian engineering student? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 
she is a data scientist. That's yeah, not that a is actually is yeah. It? yeah. But you did also infill with the idea that Previn was an engineer. Of course he was. He's Indian. Nope. 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 Uh uh-uh. What was he, he became studying? a lawyer? A lawyer. Eh, whatever. You know. I'm glad I didn't go to Harvard. It, it, you know, I didn't even apply to Harvard. I did apply to some uh, Ivy League schools. I was on the waiting list at Cornell. Their country I'm still clubs. waiting. Still waiting. Still waiting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, how would you feel? So if, if you suddenly got an acceptance letter and was like, like you're sorry. off the waiting sorry, list. Sorry, this has been on my desk for 40 years. <laughs> you're welcome to come now. <laughs> nah, I don't think yeah. so. Yeah, no, I, I don't know. These days, I don't think I would even recommend that kids go to college. I think it's well, a the, scam. I, I think the the bigger issue is that we need a better credentialing system because what a college degree is, it's a low resolution map. It's it doesn't well, actually what, tell you much. What tell it? I mean, and what it does tell you is conformity. Mm-hmm. You're willing to do nonsense. You know, like I, I don't, I wouldn't want to potentially hire. even bribery. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. You know? Well, that's, I mean, this latest thing, like yeah. you know, you're paying all this money for your kids to go to USC. Like, really? You have yeah. to. I mean, <laughs> that's because it's a country club. That's what they are. Yeah, it's breeding grounds. Yeah. It's where you can meet other rich kids and your connections and you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Fuck that. It's a, yeah, it's a it's a guild, but it's a guild not based on skill and craft. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, and you might as well just go to the country club. Yeah, accomplish they the have, same thing. Go to the they, fucking they, Kentucky Derby or something. Well, and also the country club, they also have the Olympic sized swimming pool and the golf course and the, this and all that sort of stuff. Right. And but it's it, cheaper than Harvard. Well, and there's no pretense, right? Like mm. you, you know what you're getting with the country club, right? The 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 insidious thing about a place like Harvard is is that there's this pretense that it says something about your intelligence, mm. it says something about how smart you are. Right. There's an idea that you're getting some sort of education there you can't get anywhere else. Right. But it's never clear or explicit what that is. Right. Um Yeah. Yeah. Well, you get to hang around with a bunch of other damage driven kids. That's the beauty of it. <laughs> <laughs> but none of you talks about your problems. No, yeah, because you you're all proud. It's yeah. therapy without the therapy. And everybody's got imposter syndrome. <laughs> I'm sure everybody's like, they're all smarter yeah. than me. Yeah. All right, Hunter Mots, thanks for uh, coming up to Topanga, buddy. Thank you, Chris, for having me. Okay, mom, uh, tell people what they can order from the garage. Okay, in our cottage garage, we have lots and lots of t-shirts. Sex at Dawn, Civilized to Death, Vanthropology, Tangentially Speaking, Paleo Modern, and Talking Out of My Ass. <laughs> she didn't like saying that last one. Then we now have some new things added. We've got beer cozies or koozies or whatever they're called. Oh, Civilized to Death. Design. They're all Civilized That's right. to Death. We have stickers. And car decals, right? Yes. Okay, there you have it. That's Julie, my mom. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm gonna die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation. 
to the ground. 